I came across your work on your video channel on YouTube with the language stuff that you do and the text critical stuff is what really interested me being a Bible nerd. Okay. And so I right. picked up Jesus's Bible. I have the Kindle edition. And so folks, uh, this is, I highly recommend this work. It's very readable. It's an introduction. It's basically the subtitle is a concise history of the Hebrew scriptures. It's a great introduction to the Hebrew text criticism. So I'm really excited that you joined us today. When I was in seminary, we learned text criticism only through New Testament. So mm -hmm. we, the only Old Testament text criticism we ever did was if we took an Old Testament exegesis, like a higher level Old Testament class, right. whereas yeah. everyone had to take New Testament text criticism. And is that... Was that your experience or do you think that's fairly common? We had to do as, at least in my degree programs at Alliance Theological Seminary, which is uh, the, the first graduate degree uh, where I did my first graduate degree. I came in actually as a New Testament student. I had okay. a passion for Greek. And so I think the first course that I took at the seminary was uh, Greek exegesis with Bill Crockett. Mm. And um, we had to do a fair amount of textual criticism in that class. And I think it was partly because um, Bill Crockett was a student of Bruce Metzger's uh, oh, okay. you know, when Bruce Metzger was you know, alive, still teaching. And um, so that really uh, just whetted my appetite for text criticism. And then when I switched over to the Hebrew Bible Old Testament track, um, we had some text criticism, but, it, you know, I don't know, maybe two weeks of it, you mm -hmm. know, two lectures. Okay. And that was the extent of it. So, no, I was by no means uh, an expert coming out of seminary. I mean, obviously, New Testament text criticism as a field has had more, I feel like it's been more refined there, you know, there are 20 something critical editions. I mean, more probably, but at least of the, the Nestle Allen, whereas in Hebrew Bible, you know, there haven't been as many critical editions, obviously because of the length of the work itself. And also because of there are just so many more Greek manuscripts than Hebrew texts. Yeah, and it's not so much about the number of manuscripts as it is about the inherent problems mm -hmm. in the history of the transmission of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. And just for the listeners, I tend to use the term Hebrew Bible. So, um, yes. you know, for the Christian listeners out there, Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, we're talking about the same thing. Right. Um, but the the transmission of the Hebrew Bible is a very different process from how the New Testament became a book or an anthology. And uh, a big part of the reason for the discrepancy is that the New Testament was written in a very short amount of time. We're talking about under a century, whereas the Hebrew Bible, at least for the writing of it, period of about a thousand years. Mm -hmm. That's a big difference from under 100 years. Yeah. And so the problems that uh, Hebrew Bible text critics face are just, there's a lot of similarities, but a lot of differences and a lot more complexities from what New Testament text critics face. They, yeah, they're two very, I don't want to say they're entirely different because theoretically they're doing the same thing, but like you're talking about because of the actual factors of the transmission of the text and, and even down to orthography and how, you know, how texts were written in new Testament times and new Testament being disseminated so quickly and so widely right. 
versus the very, at least in theory, controlled transmission of the Hebrew text. New Testament is almost like the Wild West in terms of manuscripts that were circulating and being put out there quickly and in different languages. And and the, the Hebrew Bible, very, very much not that. <laughs> I'm super happy that you're our final guest of 2022. And this is this is the Christmas present to Dojo viewers is we're going to get real nerdy into uh, biblical studies and text criticism. I want to ask you some beginning questions because, you know, some people may not know your uh, primarily, at least your YouTube channel primarily is linguistic. It's interpretive and text critical, but but the languages are what seem to dominate your playlist. How many languages do you read, speak, communicate in, whatever, however you wanted to put it. When you do a degree in um, Hebrew Bible, you have to have some familiarity with the, uh, you know, the family of Semitic languages and then all of the languages into which, uh, you know, the Bible was translated in ancient times. And so, you know, the stuff that I will, I'm admittedly weak in are things like Phoenician and Moabite and, and that sort of thing. That's not my area of specialty, but as part of a doctoral program, you have to be able to read inscriptions and certain texts from the world of the Bible. Um, Ugaritic is another important one, which is a second millennium. You know, we'll, we'll put Canaanite in air quotes. Um, you know, it's not officially a Canaanite language, but it's very, very similar to Hebrew and very relevant. Um, you have to know some Akkadian, which is, um, you know, was the main language of, you know, Babylon and Assyria for quite some time. So most Mesopotamian, ancient Mesopotamian texts would be written in Akkadian. Um, I'm much stronger in Aramaic and Hebrew. Um, I've also done a fair amount with Arabic and biblical Greek. So depending on how you number those, you know, about seven mm -hmm. um, on different levels. But then, you know, I've had to do some French and German. But uh, if people ask me if I speak French and German, the answer is no. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have to take a reading proficiency exam so that you can read some journals. And that's the extent of it. But in terms of modern languages, modern Hebrew, uh, Palestinian, Arabic, and then, um, you know, Spanish. And, uh, you know, again, my proficiency level with those, when you deal with so many languages, it's kind of like the stock market, you know, uh, right. up and down and up and down. But uh, these days, it's it's more Arabic and Spanish that I'm dealing with. Mm. I tell people, people ask, like, oh, you read Hebrew or you, you read Greek. I'm like, no, I decipher Hebrew and Greek. Like I have, yeah. it takes me a minute. I can't sit and sight read, you know, and, you know, certainly couldn't ever speak in any of the biblical languages, but uh, it's real languages are, did they just come easy to you or did you have to really, really work? Are you one of those who naturally picks up on linguistic concepts or are they difficult uh, for you to wrap your mind around? I, well, at least what I found is that once you've learned one foreign language and you get on to your second, your mind develops a, um, you know, paradigms. And it's much easier to learn a second and third and fourth language because languages are not really all that different at their core. Mm. Um, you, they may sound different, they may look different in writing, but, you know, most of the languages that we're talking about here when you look at the core makeup of them, 
there's just not a heck of a lot of difference. Um, so, you know, one of my seminary professors said about uh, Hebrew one time, uh, he said, you know, sometimes things that look the same are really very different and things that look different are actually very much the same. And so that's what I've found is that, you know, a lot of these languages that look so different and sound so different, uh, they're, they're really very similar when you get right down to it. Some more than others, but mm -hmm. you get the idea. Right. To me, the biggest difference that I've noticed, or at least the biggest um, struggle for me as a not linguistically inclined person, being out of seminary 20 years now, trying to keep my languages right. proficient on my own, the, the biggest difference is vocabulary, English cognates. So right. like Greek vocabulary is v pretty easy because a third of our language comes from right. Greek. Hebrew vocabulary is ruthlessly hard for me because right. so every verb sounds the same to me <laughs> in Hebrew. Yep. And I mean, they look like that's what I'm saying. When I when I was in Israel hearing Hebrew, I I had no idea what you're saying because of so many sounds being linguistically similar. But if it was written out, oh, OK, I know what that word means. OK, I, I can yeah. make my way through there. So how, what are some tips for somebody trying to, is it just, you got to immerse and that's the only yeah. way or. You know, what I've found and a number of my former students who've um, gone on for doctoral work or advanced work in, in Hebrew Bible have found that when you study biblical Hebrew, for instance, it is a dead language and the Hebrew of the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament isn't even really exactly the same language throughout. I mean, there are, it's not even taught in first year and second year uh, Hebrew usually that there is Israeli Hebrew, you know, the Hebrew of the Northern Kingdom, and there is Southern Hebrew or Judean Hebrew in the Bible. And usually what we're taught is Judean Hebrew because that's the predominant one. Mm -hmm. And so there are differences. You also have different registers. So reading Deuteronomy, for instance, is far easier than reading, say, Proverbs or mm -hmm. the Psalms or something like that. What I find, and I think anybody who's honest with you, uh, even you know most of the most advanced scholars are gonna say that there are certain parts of the Bible that they can read very easily and other parts where they have to sit down and, you know, sometimes look at, at commentaries, dictionaries, because, you know, if it's passage you haven't looked at in a few years and it occur, you know, there's one word um, that in its context doesn't make a heck, heck of a lot of sense um, and you haven't seen it for so long, well, it's natural that you're going to forget it. So uh, sometimes yeah. some helps are necessary. That was uh, Richard J. Richard Middleton was my last guest on our last episode, and we we went right. did a deep dive on Psalm seventy seven that he had pre presented at SBL, and he made the exact same point. He said, you know, you after you've taken Hebrew in seminary, you know Hebrew prose, you know basic Hebrew prose, but you right. do not know Hebrew poetry. So that's something I think readers, readers. That's something I think viewers are it's important to realize because in writing about Old Testament, people sometimes oversimplify. And for a popular audience, of course, you have to do a degree of oversimplification. But then that trickles into apologetics. 
and or popular preaching and then that right. trickles into your everyday people and so when when somebody does start to explore the complexities of text criticism which we'll talk about or of even the hebrew language or the greek language of scripture they start to get nervous because it seems to undermine the certainty that they've always heard preached or or read in apologetics yeah. books and so i I appreciated that about your book about Jesus's Bible. Yeah. That makes people uncomfortable. What do you what do you say to somebody who says, you know, Dr. Doss, this is starting to make me uncomfortable? You know, what I as a pastor because I'm also a pastor too, um, but I try to be as best I can to just be honest when I'm preaching about what I know to be true as a scholar mm-hmm. or what I'm at least to the best of my ability, or, or you know, the best I can say, certain about as a scholar, and it's this that it's usually people, the people who fear these kinds of discussions are people who have a strong faith in God, and what I like to point out to them is that, you know, in Jesus's day, and this comes up in different ways in my book, Jesus's Bible, there was no one version of the Hebrew Bible. It simply did. It didn't exist. It, the text of Jeremiah, for instance, if you look in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you've got a short version and a long version, and they're significantly different. The fact that the writers of the New Testament often quote from the Septuagint or the the Greek Old Testament, um, that the Greek is a translation that has all sorts of corruptions in it, and yet. What we find, you know, for those of us who believe that God is in the business of transforming people's lives and, you know, transforming the world, is that he's always been in the business of transforming the world and transforming people's lives, you know, oftentimes through the reading of biblical manuscripts or biblical translations that were faulty. And it's one of those things that, yeah, it is unsettling. Because many people feel, and I heard this in Bible college, that once you start asking these questions that theologically you're on a slippery slope towards atheism, there's no doubt about it that there are plenty of people whose faith has altered significantly. Mm-hmm. And, and there's just no doubt about that. But, you know, I am, uh, while, while certain views I have have changed, I still find myself personally very much in the evangelical Christian community as I was before I went to seminary. It's just that I feel that I'm able to articulate uh, some of those mysteries, particularly about how the Bible became a book and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't undermined my faith in any way. It's just given me clarity and some new perspectives that eh, might not be as popular in some circles, but right. I, I still find my home within the evangelical church. So it doesn't need to be um, something to be feared. I think you're absolutely right. I, for me, learning text criticism and really getting into things and, and, and the two biggest things for me in seminary takeaways were learning text criticism, just understanding that concept, how we got our Bibles, why we can try, I think why we can trust them. And also the ambiguity inherent in particularly in Hebrew, but also in Greek, there's just an ambiguity of language that it, it allowed me now when I come to certain certain issues where Christians kind of get all up in arms about or want to debate endlessly, 
now when I come to some of them, I think my approach is usually like, yeah, there's good arguments for this. There's good arguments for this. I think there's ambiguity and I think God's okay with that ambiguity. But if somebody, especially coming from a very strong, even fundamentalist background, that starts to get unnerving to a lot of people. And I just want to encourage viewers. You have Bruce Metzger and Bart Ehrman, right? And and Bart Ehrman has well-known slide into agnosticism. And I think that's still where he ends up today. Bruce Metzger was, you know, died a ordained churchman and a from everybody that I know who's ever met him account, a godly, passionate follower of Jesus. And so right. people can look at the same thing and come to different conclusions. So you don't have to fear, oh, I'm going to end right. up like this person. Oh, I'm going to end up like this person. And, you know, Bart Ehrman, it's interesting that you mentioned him. Um, is I think it was in his book. Was it Jesus Interrupted? Is, is I haven't read Jesus Interrupted, but I know that. Okay. Book. I, I want to say that it was in that book that he talks about his journey in the introduction or chapter one or whatever, mm -hmm. and he discusses some of these problems and sometimes his, you know, he, you know, his conclusions about them are a little overblown, but, right. um, but even if you were to take that at face value, you know, his, his conclusions about some of these troubling issues, um, he says it wasn't if I remember correctly, it wasn't those issues that led him into agnosticism. It was an entirely different theological issue. Mm. And it had to do with the problem of suffering. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's also worth noting. When people's theological views change drastically on a macro level, it's not always one simple cause or one, one simple factor. There's usually a complexity there. That's and, a great, that's a yeah. great point. Yeah. I mean, that's a good pastoral, I mean, you, being a pastor, you know, from experience when people are struggling with, with one issue, then it, that shapes how they view other issues. And so if somebody's Absolutely. struggling with God and theodicy or death of a loved one or seeing some tragedy play on TV and wonder how can God do that, that's going to then shade the amount of trust that they're willing to give the text. So I know that you taught at Bethlehem Bible College at some point. Yeah, I taught a modern Hebrew class for internationals online there. So okay. I, I haven't talked with them in a few months, but um, Bethlehem Bible College has had, I, I think this developed during COVID, um, an online initiative to uh, bring, you know, their theological educational product to the English speaking world. And so they had uh, asked me to teach a course in modern Hebrew, and we had a great time with it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how did you was, get connected? How how what, how did that come about, or how, who were your connections there? Or, uh, yeah, Yusuf Al Khuri, who is a professor uh, at Bethlehem Bible College now, mm -hmm. was a student at um, Alliance Theological Seminary, where I taught. You know, first part time in two thousand six until I think I was there to like 2019. And um, so he was a student there. Um, and, you know, toward the end of his time there, he became a friend. And then I went to the uh, Christ at the Checkpoint conference. I want to say that was 2018. And so I got to spend a good deal of time with Yusuf there and was introduced to many of the people from um, from BBC 
and uh, just developed some some friendships uh, there as a result. So, yeah. That's awesome. I took a group to back to 2018. I went to, for the first time to Christ at Checkpoint in 2014. First time okay. I've ever been to the Holy Land. And that was that was actually where my the the I feel like God put the vision for my refugee jitsu outreach was when I was okay. walking through the Ida refugee camp in um, right in Bethlehem. But uh, over the years, I stayed in touch with Jack and Munther and Sammy, right. and some of the people there. And then in 2018, I took a small group, I think there were about six of us, and I took them to the conference and then to uh, visit friends in Israel and see the Holy Land. And Yusuf was one of the people that I got to connect. Oh, so you know Yusuf. All right. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, He's a great guy. I I think I told him he's his job is to find me a Palestinian wife so that next time I come, I uh, can, you know, not be a single guy anymore because bachelor is getting old. So I don't know if he's really on that or not. But Yusuf, if you catch this, come on, man, get on it because. Uh, well, if I talk yeah. to him, I'll encourage him. Yeah, it would be. I wouldn't <laughs> mind if I had to. If I had to move from Charlotte, uh, Bethlehem, I think might be somewhere I could see ending up. But no, I. In all seriousness, I really. I mean, viewers of Disciple Dojo have heard me mention Bethlehem Bible College before, but I okay. really have a a very tremendous amount of respect for what they're doing, how they're doing it, um, just being a, a a light in Bethlehem and the heart for bringing people together, even people that don't like each other or don't agree with each other. Uh, right. As they invited my friend, Dr. Michael Brown, to come and speak, whose message was not by any means popular at that conference. Uh, right. And he and I have debated before, and so I, I knew going in that was going to be interesting. But I any anybody that does that, especially in the midst of living in modern day West bank just right. has tremendous respect. What was your, how much did you live in Israel? Uh, did you spend time in the West bank? Have you gone or what's your yeah, experience the, I mean, been in the Holy Last Bank? time I was there, you know, I've, I've been there three times. The last time I was there, I was there for about a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I think the first part was for the conference. Um, and then I stayed on for a while and then my father came and we, I think we spent another two weeks or so, uh, you know, both in the West bank and, uh, in Israel, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing, you know, some tourism, but the tourism is, yeah, it's exciting to go see those places. But these days I'm more interested in the people who actually live there now, you know, mm-hmm. the people who are still living and breathing. Um, <laughs> the living yeah. Stories. So, yeah, exactly. Right. And um, but it was important for me to to go there to the conference in 2018 because, you know, I have three degrees from Jewish Theological Seminary. You know, so I did the Master of Arts, the MPhil, and then the PhD there. And it was very important to me to understand um, whether the conference was anti-Semitic or not. Because there were people, um, certain Jewish friends who were under that impression. There were certainly um, people at Alliance Theological Seminary, not all of them, but, you know, some of them who thought that. And I figure I really need to go to see this for myself. And I don't see anything they're doing as anti-Semitic in any way, shape or form. My experience with it, and you might know better than I do, um, but knowing Jack Sarah, the president of BBC, some of the professors there, I've even become friends with some of the staff. The Christ at the Checkpoint initiative is an honest, open-hearted, 
uh, I would say, almost first effort at trying to create a healthy um, discussion that takes seriously both the academic study of the Bible. You know, you look at, I had uh, Johanna Katanasho, who's a, a president, uh, who um, he's, I think he's a professor there, but he's been connected with Nazareth Evangelical College. You know, you look at his work, he's a serious student of the scriptures, but he's also a churchman too. Mm -hmm. The conclusion that I came to is that they are doing a fantastic job. Now, you can look at any organization or any individual and, you know, criticize them for this or that or the other thing. People do that with me all the time. And I take it for granted, even just with this podcast, that there'll be listeners who might hear something that I say and will vehemently disagree with it. And from my perspective, that's okay. Right. Because even if it turns out that I'm wrong, you know, hopefully the fact that we're having an honest discussion about, you know, some sensitive matters will help other people to clarify their position. In, in 2018, yeah, there were things that I thought, okay, next time they do this, I'd like to see them do that maybe. Right. But in terms of major criticisms or anti-Semitism uh, or anything like that, I saw absolutely no evidence of that. And you know, knowing many of the people who put that conference together, I know for a fact that that's not who they are. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that any any conference that brings together a wide array of voices, like you said, you're going to have people who they don't even people on the same side of an issue don't agree right. on a lot of stuff. I mean, that's just the nature of any large group of people. And so people have mentioned before, I mean, I, I, when I got back in 2014 is when I debated Michael Brown on the whole Israeli-Palestinian, where should Christians stand? Should we stand with anybody? Right. And we had a good discussion at Gordon Conwell uh, on that issue. And, and it was, uh, people can check it out online. I'll put a link in the video below. But I, I've realized it's the same with you know, when I talk with friends who go to like pro-Zionism conferences, or, you know, pro stand with Israel conferences, that kind of stuff. When I talk to them, I'm like, you, you have beliefs that many people would look at and go, that's anti-Arab, that's anti-Palestinian, right. you know, that's very, but they would never, they'd say, no, that's, but that's not my heart. I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to, because I love this, I'm trying to lift it up. And they, so there's a lot of, those type of discussions need to be had of like, okay, I, I hear in your heart. I'm hearing where you're coming from. Are right. you hearing mine? Yeah, I mean, even Michael Brown, we, I was in a group that he did, uh, you know, breakout session, I think, uh, uh, at the 2018 conference. Now he and I, in, ter in terms of, uh, academic training, you know, he, he went to NYU, did his doctorate there mm -hmm. and essentially a Jewish school, which or a heavily Jewish school, which, um, you know, follows, you know, and teaches historical critical principles, just like I studied at JTS. I have a lot of respect for him. He and I disagree on some really fundamental issues, mm -hmm. and yet we have the same training. And so it's, you know, what I took away from that, and, you know, certainly other experiences, that even when people go through the same type of training, it doesn't guarantee that their views are going to come out the same. That's a great And, yep. you know, instead of, you know, castigating one another, um, when you see that the person's heart is in the right place and, 
even though I disagree with him on, as I said, some very significant things, um, he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. And I can admit that, hey, maybe I'll see one day that I'm the one who's wrong about this. But um, yeah, just because someone disagrees mm-hmm. um, doesn't mean we should shun them or, you know, cast them off. That's that's the, the culture of our world today, right. uh, that polarizing uh, culture. And that's not how we come to the truth. In fact, you know, one of the things you find in the work of Walter Brueggemann, for instance, you know, to do a little Old Testament theology for a minute, mm-hmm. is that when when one approaches just the Hebrew scriptures, for instance, and lets every book have its own voice, that we look at the Hebrew scriptures not as a book, but as an anthology, right? Mm-hmm. And let every book have its own voice, what we find is that sometimes those books are in tension with one another. Mm -hmm. And a great example is that I think is often missed is when you look at the book of Job, for instance, why is it that the friends are, you know, essentially condemned by God? And if you actually look at what they're saying, the problem that God has with them is that they were throwing in Job's face the wisdom, the type of wisdom that you find in the book of Proverbs. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, once one comes to that realization that, wait a second, these guys were essentially quoting scripture back to Job, and God says, you guys were wrong about that. The theological implications of that are, are very substantial. And, but the, the takeaway for the purpose of this conversation is that even in the scriptures, you can find that um, even books, for various reasons, are in tension with one another, mm-hmm. and God wanted it that way. You know, I, I often would tell my students in seminary when they had a problem with this or this sort of thing made them feel uncomfortable, is, I said, look, guys, just think about the fact for a minute that God did not give believers a systematic theology. Exactly. He gave them a Bible, which is an anthology. Mm -hmm. And yet the way evangelicals tend to look at the Bible is as if it's a systematic theology. It's not, but we tend to treat it that way. And that's really where the problem is. Yeah, I agree. I I agree. And in the review, I did a a review of the systematic theology study Bible and used that to touch on this issue. What is systematic theology and where I personally see it's benefits, but also extreme limitations. And the biggest one being, like you just said, it's not what God gave us. He didn't give us a set of timeless principles. He didn't give us axioms and eight noble truths. And, you know, he didn't give us these things that other religions and other philosophies kind of build themselves around or pride themselves on. He gave us a really fascinating, wonderful, confusing, messy story in a library form. And that's that in and of itself, I think once people grasp that, it makes a difference in their theology and their willingness to enter into dialogue with other people and to be made uncomfortable. And Christians can learn, you know, really take the cue from Judaism in that, you know, rabbinic Judaism, you know, the Talmud is a multi-volume, let's let's just call it for simplicity's sake, a multi-volume set of Jewish oral Torah. 
-hmm. okay? It's, it's oral scripture, oral tradition that's been written down, written down. And it, one of its characteristic features, and I'm no expert, but it's just so obvious, you know, open to, you know, seemingly any page, debate. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, you know, one rabbi says this, another rabbi says that, and it's the preservation of debate about theological matters. And that is canonized, essentially, within the Jewish tradition. And I think, you know, we as, as Christians or those of the listeners who are, are uh, Christians um, can learn something from that, that debate is healthy. Yeah, it's it's crucial. I've learned the I learned the most in discussion with people, and I learned right. the most most in discussion with people I disagree with. I want to get into some of the text critical stuff. We, you, sure. know, you just mentioned the Talmud, which is for I want to I want to go back a step further. We, you and I, have been having a conversation between people who are some, you know, well, you've much further into the field than I am, but I want to back up and, and kind of start from ground zero because I know some have never even, they don't even know what text criticism means. They don't know what a text critical scholar is. Now, we're not going to redo, we're not going to reinvent the wheel here, folks. If you want an introduction to text criticism, go to our Bible for the Rest of Us course. It's absolutely free over on the Disciple Dojo website. There is a whole series of opening sessions. And one of them is what is text criticism? I think it's called mistaken manuscripts. I can't remember which session it is, but that's an inner introduction and a theological understanding of what the concept of text criticism is. But what we don't do in Bible for the rest of us is we don't actually get to talk to a text critic or someone who's done work in text criticism, who's done work in actually looking at Hebrew manuscripts and deciphering is this word divided correctly or is this Masoretic vowel pointing should it be this instead of this so that's what I wanted this time to to the bulk of this time to be is getting to pop the hood sure. as we say and and tinker around and see how it works so my what I want to ask on behalf of viewers and, and a little bit for myself is how do you one how do you become a text critical scholar and two what does text critical scholarship consist of? Like, what do you actually do? Do you go around with a magnifying glass and libraries and <laughs> monasteries and peer at old manuscripts? Are you like Indiana? There Jones? actually is an element of that for some of us. Yeah. Yeah. Textual criticism. Um, so let's, let's uh, define it in simple terms. So first of all, when we talk about criticism of the Bible, substitute the word criticism for analysis. Because that's essentially what it is. When we talk about criticism of texts, we're really talking about analysis. So text criticism is simply or more broadly an analysis of the text itself. So we have to ask, how did we even get that Bible translation? Well, obviously there were some scholars and usually, you know, the average Bible reader has no idea who these people are. Um, have translated the Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew of the Old and New Testaments into English or, you know, whatever the target language is. And so there's this conception or misconception, I should say, at least in evangelical circles, of, the, of, of what we mean by the original of the Bible. And people will use that term, the original. In the original, the Bible says this. And what is meant by that is in the original Hebrew of the Old Testament text or in the original 
Greek, the text actually says this, right? Now, there's a fundamental problem with that term. What the idea that has been perpetuated in the church is that every book of the Bible originally uh, was, there was one manuscript. So Paul dictated Romans, and there was one copy made at first, and then over time, many copies of that original version were made, and, and so on and so forth. By and large, with the New Testament, that's probably the case with, with most of the documents. At least with the Hebrew Scriptures, there is not one book, in my opinion, in the Hebrew Bible that was originally created as a document. Okay, so this idea of the original text of of any book of the Old Testament, whether you're talking about Genesis or Jonah or Ezekiel, it it doesn't matter. In in terms of there being initially a finished product in the time of the author, I just don't know that that was the case. And what I mean to say by that, I should clarify that statement that. In Ezekiel's lifetime, the book of Ezekiel as we have it was not produced. Ezekiel did not produce the final form. Right. Okay. Certainly would have been involved either in writing or, you know, at least in the oral transmission. In ancient Israel and in the ancient Near East, the the oral aspect of textual transmission, and I'm going to use text in air quotes here. It plays a heavy, heavy role. Um, we know when we look at Elijah, for instance, or Elisha, they didn't write a blessed thing. In fact, Jesus himself didn't write a thing. Right. And so even in New Testament times, orality is the norm. Writing is not. And there's a good reason for that. Most people can't read. It's that simple. So we're one of the things I talk about in Jesus's Bible is, it, you know, it's going to vary from culture to culture. But, you know, in ancient Egypt, you're probably looking at like 3% literacy. Mm. I mean, think about that for a minute. 3% literacy. Mm. Um, ancient Mesopotamia, maybe, you know, some estimates say 5%. Ancient Greece, maybe you can get as high as 10%. But that's very generous. And so we're talking about, let's say, an average of 5% literacy. And there's a good reason for it. It's because writing and reading does not help one to survive. You know, learning to read and write does not help you to have a successful harvest and feed your family. So we don't have this um, academic, um, um, you know, literate culture that we have today. There certainly were people who could read and write and served a function principally in the temple and the court, mm -hmm. the royal court. So it was it was going to be either a royal function or a, a a religious function, a priestly function. But outside of that, most people could not uh, read. In fact, you know the the word for the, the most common word for read in um, you know in biblical Hebrew, likol, to read, or you know some people learn it as kara, um, really means to proclaim because reading was generally done by one person out loud for the benefit of many others. Mm -hmm. And so when, 
when when the book of revelation this this translates even into the new testament when the book of revelation says you know blessed are those who read the words of these books it that really needs to be translated as blessed are those who proclaim the words of this book mm-hmm. because most people can't read and and the idea is that you you even see this in revelation 2 and 3 that these letters are being disseminated to the churches well how are the church people getting the information it's not with their eyes it's with their ears mm-hmm. so all that to say the operating assumption should be that we start with an oral tradition of some sort and it eventually sometimes very quickly but uh, you know sometimes there's a longer gap it eventually becomes a written tradition even for those who take um the you know some of the statements in the bible about mosaic authorship that moses wrote the first five books of the bible well okay so let's say moses lived sometime around you know, the 13th century. Well, regardless of what you think about Genesis, I mean, just go back to Abraham, who what, maybe lived 1800, 2000, you know, we're, we're talking about hundreds of hundreds of years, and there's nothing in Genesis to, success, uh, to suggest that Abraham or, you know, Isaac or Jacob or any of the 12 wrote any of these stories down. Mm-hmm. And so, the operating assumption, you know, coming back to text criticism here, is that we have to start with the understanding that there is no recoverable original. In in most cases, it simply doesn't exist. There is no original. When David presumably wrote some of the Psalms, they were probably sung orally, modified orally over time. Uh, which is how many songwriters work today even. When you look at the uh, superscriptions or the the titles, let's call them, at the heading of many Psalms, of David, of Solomon, of Moses. Uh, my favorite one is He-Man. Um, <laughs> you know, Mine too. Um, He's right behind me. Yeah, right. I, I, know, I thought that would be appropriate. So, <laughs> But um, we, ju- if you take the book of Psalms at face value, then we see that First of all, we've got a composer of of the Davidic Psalms who did a lot of this stuff on the fly out in the wilderness when he didn't have access to writing materials. Mm -hmm. And secondly, that there were generations of people writing Psalms and over time they were brought together, right? The book of Proverbs, we, you know, you look at chapter one and, you know, I think chapter eight mentions Solomon. Proverbs 25 says, Hezekiah in the 8th century has people working on the book of uh, uh, Proverbs. And then the last few chapters of Proverbs, those aren't Solomonic. It it says right, right in the superscription that they're attributed to others. And so the question of what is the original text of any Old Testament book is highly problematic. And so that begs the question, well, what do text critics of the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures actually do? What is their goal? And the goal really cannot be to get back to the original reading of any book, because there is no way to scientifically or objectively determine that any particular words that 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 we talk about um, were necessarily there in the original version. 
So what we're looking for instead are ancient text traditions, and some of them are going to have a greater historicity, a longer uh, historical transmission. And if you want to use the term more original, that would be more appropriate. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is it's, it's so complicated that the way Bible translations operate, and I'll just speak about English, but it's true for other languages, is that when English Bible translations are produced, it is principally from a, a medieval text tradition called the, the Masoretic text. And the Masoretic text as David Marcus and James Sanders pointed out, I think it was in um, uh, Biblio uh, Biblical uh, Archaeology or something like that, they said it's not even the best text of the Hebrew Bible. And so one of the things that is we just have to come to terms with is that it's just over the course of centuries of copying um, mistakes and changes have crept in. And that's just the reality. So when it comes to Old Testament, and this is something that is pretty different than New Testament, um, because like you said, you know, New Testament does itself claim, most of the New Testament does claim to be the product of at least a particular author of each letter, each epistle, even right. each gospel. And in the Old Testament, you know, there is not that. The question that people have, and I think it's a fair question, is, okay, how do we keep from falling down the slippery slope of, um, okay, we can't have textual absolutism in the Old Testament. Right. But that then seems to mean that we can't have any certainty of anything that we're reading. And if that's the case, how is it even inspired? How could... Paul say all scripture is inspired, God breathed. You know, he's talking about the Old Testament. How could Jesus say it is written, it is written, if somebody could say, well, Jesus, is it written? You know, because that starts to sound like, did God really say? These are all of the, per I think, very legitimate questions that people have, especially Absolutely. when it comes to Old Testament text <clears throat> criticism. So how right. do we navigate that? Where to begin? So <laughs> to to pick up on your your comment about the New Testament, yeah, I forget what the figure is that Metzger and others have given, but in terms of scholars' ability to reconstruct what is probably the original version of each um, or, or of the New Testament as a whole, what it looked like, what each book looked like in its inception, um, the figures, I forget if it's in 97%, 99%. High 90s. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's high 90s. So with, with the Hebrew scriptures, it just ain't even close. Um, you know, it's, so we're talking about a tale of two testaments, as it were. And so the first thing that for, at least for people who are coming from more of an evangelical Christian view, is that in, in terms of the textual reliability of the New Testament, it is highly reliable. And a lot of the discrepancies have to do with very small things. For those who are concerned with the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, 
the the bigger concern from text criticism anyway pertains to the New Testament more than it does to the Old Testament. Mm. And no major Christian doctrine rests on a text critical issue. So hopefully that will allay people's fears a little bit. Mm. But your your point is still a valid one that when Paul says in 2 Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed or you know often translated inspired he's essentially talking about the Hebrew scriptures now what we have to remember however is that Paul is writing in Greek to and if we assume that Timothy is in Ephesus it's going to be an audience that is going to be reading and thinking about the Old Testament in Greek, not in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And so before we can even understand what Paul's saying and, and the implications of what Paul is saying in 2 Timothy 3.16, we have to understand that who his audience is, presumably Ephesus, but even if it's not, it's a, a Greek-speaking audience for sure— you know, an audience that could only access the Old Testament scriptures in Greek. Um, And he's saying that those scriptures are God-breathed. Now, we know for a fact as text critics that the the Septuagint, the, the Greek Old Testament, contains corruptions. It contains mistakes because, you know, all, all copies of scripture, all translation uh, is, is going to have some mistakes inherently. Um, it also is full of interpretation because at the end of the day, all translation, even if someone were here rendering this interview literally into Spanish for a Spanish speaking audience, they have to interpret things that we're saying mm-hmm. because that's what translation is. Translation yeah. is inherently an act of interpretation. Yes. And so, the very fact that it is a translation means it's an interpretation. Um, and then we know that there are corruptions in it, you know, um, errors in transmission, that sort of thing. Um, certain books of the, the Greek scriptures existed in, multi, you know, different versions. Uh, the book of Daniel is a great example. Um, and Paul is aware of all of this, that for all its flaws, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, is inspired by God. And so that's important because he understands that whatever the flaws of that translation are, God is acting in people's lives through versions of Scripture, copies of Scriptures that are corrupted. And that is no different from uh, today, for instance— there are, you know, one example uh, that, you know, I can come back to later, but there, there are a number of verses where the NIV, for instance, might omit a verse that might be found in the New American Standard Bible or the King James Version. Now, regardless of where a person stands on those issues, if we just stop and say, has God you know, to the best of our understanding, transformed people's lives through the reading of the King James Bible that has this verse? Mm. And the answer, I think we'd have to admit is yes. And then has God transformed people's lives through the reading of the NIV, which lacks that verse? And the answer is yes. Well, one of them's not right. Maybe both of them aren't right. Mm -hmm. But either way, we have 
corruptions and deficiencies, even in modern English translations, and yet we see people's lives being transformed in the church. All that to say it doesn't need to, it, it shouldn't logically lead us to the conclusion that we can't trust anything the Bible says. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, there are other questions that come up, but it, it should not pull the rug out from under our faith in God. Yeah, I think that's a point that's worth emphasizing to viewers too. Even what even what you're saying, um, sticking with with the Hebrew scriptures, with the Old Testament, there's there's it's like there's a range of views on how certain we can be of right. what we're reading, and it's not like you have to you have to either have absolute certainty or absolute uncertainty. But right. rather, you can say, "This is what we have. This is what the text is." This is and you'd have to, I think, you have to look at different books rather than the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, because, like you said, you know, they, they weren't bound; they weren't even bound together until after the Christian era. So that's absolutely right. You had scrolls, the writings, the the prophets, Torah. When you look at those individually there has to be a level of ambiguity that you decide you're comfortable with. And for some scholars, it's higher than others. And some scholars take a more conservative approach and say, actually, no, I think we can be more certain than Chris is saying here. And other scholars would say, actually, no, I don't even think we can be as certain as he's saying. Right. So there's, there's a spectrum. And, and I think that's important yes. to know because viewers will inherently want to, you know, that want to argue, want to fight over right. it. And I don't discourage that. And, and the comment sections are wide open for people to, yep. and they do leave their views. But I want to, I just want to make sure people here, especially those, you know, casual viewers who aren't in the weeds of text criticism, that what, what Chris is talking about text criticism is reconstructing the text. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's a different thing than telling the origin of the text. So if we reconstruct, let's say the book of Jonah, if we reconstruct the the text of Jonah, we can we can make it a goal of okay, what was the what is the Masoretic text of Jonah that the Masoretes in the around a thousand AD were working with? What is the Dead Sea Scroll? You know, what would the Qumran community reading when they read the text of Jonah? And then what is the Septuagint text of Jonah? We can, those are kind of like, those are separate questions. And then once you have as good an answer as you can get on those questions, then you have to do the work of, okay, now these are our different witnesses, these different traditions, which of them is the book of Jonah that we are going to present to readers in a translation? Yeah. And even all of that is a different question than how did the book of Jonah get written in the first place? Did Jonah write it after these events? Is it a parable that later uh, writers in Israel or prophets in Israel wrote and used Jonah as the character? Tell it. Is it something else? I want readers to appreciate the complexity Right. Of what goes into biblical scholarship, because too often Christians, especially, 
take a very facile view and just a like, oh, scholars scholar, always bristle when people say, well, scholars believe as soon as somebody says that phrase, I usually go time out, yep. which scholars, what is the specific issue? <laughs> like you, you just open all, there's, there's no consensus on some things. Yep. And, and, and so it, it's, it's, I mean, we're, we're, we're pulling back the curtain showing right. what goes on, how this whole process works and it can get messy for some people. Um, Absolutely. But for other people, it's, it's exhilarating. You know, I had in seminary, one of my roommates, we roomed together for a semester at Gordon-Conwell, uh, Mike Dobashinsky. I don't know where he is today. Mike, if you're ever seeing this, this is who I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> as I, I, he's not on Facebook, I don't think, so I don't know if I... Yeah. But anyway, Mike, message me if you get this. It's been too long. He was a biblical languages major. I was okay. in div. So our class loads, our workloads were very, very different. And we were talking about calling one time around dinner in the cafeteria, a bunch of people yep. were like, what's your dream ministry? And everybody was going around saying what theirs were. One lady said, I want to be a chaplain on a cruise ship. And I was like, I didn't even know that's a thing, <laughs> but man, that right. sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, Mike said, he said, I want to get a job at a small Christian college and just do text criticism all day. And, and mm -hmm. literally sift through manuscripts and examine letters and decide, is this a Yod or a Vav? Is this, you know, I mean, that right. he and I, I yeah, jokingly, I was like, oh, way to be salt and light, you know, because I was picturing somebody tucked right. away. And then immediately I was like, actually, no, that's not true. I, I'm just kidding. You're I'm going to be reading your Bible someday. Like I'm going to mm -hmm. be if I'm teaching and preaching. I'm going to be using a translation that was right. based on a critical edition that you probably worked on. And so right. you are being salt and light text critic, people who, you know, cloister away in monasteries and dusty manuscripts. And all that. We joke about it, but that is being salt and light. If it leads to the production of a more reliable right. presentation of those God breathed, scriptures. And right. so that's yeah. something that I, you know, I, and I do look at critical, you know, Richard Middleton and I were talking about this. He said he, he's never separated his academia from ministry. He's always viewed right. academia as perfectly aligned with his ministry. And I, I want to express that to viewers too. I, I don't think there needs to be conflict. There will be tension, but yeah. I don't think there needs to be conflict on it. So then what do you, you work, tell me what text critical work you have spent the most time doing professionally. Uh, the first book that I published, which is a, um, a revision of my doctoral dissertation is a book called the subloco notes in the former prophets of Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia. All right. And every yes, viewer is familiar. Exactly. And that, this so. is, yeah. So this is the, <laughs> point in the conversation where everybody's eyes gloss over and, you know, where do we go from here? Right. <laughs> so, so viewers behind me, right behind Captain America there on the shelf is the Biblical Hebraica Stuttgartensia, the BHS. So that's what that is. Now tell us what that is. Right. So BHS, as we call it, um, it's uh you know, the four, really the fourth edition of the Biblia Hebraica, which is what we'd call a critical edition of 
the Hebrew Bible. By critical edition, how to put it, it's it's an edition essentially for scholars and advanced students, which presents the text of the Bible, in this case, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, along with essential information such as <clears throat> variant readings. You will see notes at the bottom of the page which mention the different readings that are found in these manuscripts. Those who use study Bibles will sometimes see a footnote in their study Bible that says some manuscripts say, mm -hmm. and that's kind of how it works in a critical edition. It's just that the text that we look at is in the quote unquote original and those other manuscripts and what they say is actually presented at the bottom of the page so that we can sift through the different possibilities. Um, an example, I'll give you an example out of the New Testament that's really easy. So if you look at um, the Gospel of Mark, and uh, JM will put it up on the, the screen here for us. All right. So yeah, we've got Mark 1, and I've, I've got the NIV here for viewers looking, and then the middle column. This is the NA28. That's the Nestle Aland or Nestle Allen Greek 28th critical edition. And then the United Bible Societies. This is actually USB five. I don't know if you said right. you're using four or not, but nope, I got the fifth edition. Okay, yeah. So these are these. This is our English. This is a typical English translation on the left, and then two different critical Greek editions. And so, right. Chris, what what did you want us to look at here? So what we get here is in um, the text as it's presented in the UBS five. It what it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the translation, standard translation of the first five words that you see. Mm -hmm. So even if you don't know Greek, those first five words translate yes. to the beginning, beginning of the gospel, gospel of Jesus Christ. Of Jesus Christ. And then in the UBS, you can see that the last two words are in square brackets. Mm -hmm. Those words, huiu theu, mean son of God, the son of God. Okay. And so the reason why they're in brackets is because there is different manuscript evidence as to whether those words should be considered an original component of the Gospel of Mark. Okay, and one of the things that, that we can look at on the screen is Codex Sinaiticus. And we can see that this important manuscript, which dates to the fourth century, is ambiguous as to whether it should, the verse should end with the word Christ or with Son of God. The original text of Codex Sinaiticus has the word, it ends with Christu. Of Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. That's what the original manuscript, the, the manuscript said originally. But there was a later hand, a correction that added the words, the son of God. Okay. So now there is a question as to whether which one is the best reading and scholars are divided. And for that reason, you will see it uh, in some Bibles you know, a footnote is presented that says, you know, some manuscripts lack the word son of God. Mm -hmm. um, in the UBS text, they just put it in square brackets. That's their way of saying, 
we don't know if these words should really be here or not. Right. NIV, now, uh, NIV has a footnote. It just says, yes, yeah, some manuscripts do not have, and then in italics, the Son of God. So what NIV editors are telling you as a reader is that this phrase, what Chris just said, huyutheu, is not in some manuscripts. And the critical edition, so here's uh, UBS, at the bottom of the screen, you can see these the all of that gobbledygook that just popped up there for those of you. Even for me, some is. of it's gobbledygook. But that's the apparatus. That's the that's, that's right. text critical scholars saying, here are the manuscripts that say this. Here are the manuscripts that read this way. And it and it lists the name of the manuscripts even by their number or by their family or, you know, that, but that's what that is, that stuff at the bottom of the page. Super important for translators, right. for scholars, even for educated preachers sometimes when it right. makes a difference. Yep. And with this example, I think this is a great example mm -hmm. to illustrate what a critical edition is, because just from the, uh, the I think it was the NIV you said uh, with that footnote, Yep. that's essentially what a critical edition is it's just that it's the it's in the original language and instead of just saying hey some manuscripts lack this or some manuscripts say that they actually give you the manuscript evidence so that you can sort through it and make a decision but this is also valuable for another reason and in this verse we see the intersection of textual criticism the study of the text itself with theology because one of the things that many people who um, prefer the King James Bible, for instance, um, will say is that newer translations sometimes remove words from the Bible. And, and they'll say that that's problematic for theological reasons because their argument will be something like this. Look, you know, some of these translations remove the word son of God from the right. text. You know, therefore, that translation is trying to um, take away you know, the divinity of Jesus. Exactly. Yes. And, and nothing could be further from the truth, because all you have to do is look at uh, a, a version of the Bible where there are missing words and phrases and, and, and verses. And what you will find is that they still affirm the divinity of Christ yeah. or, you know, Christ's miracle work. Or, you know, whatever the issue you think is. Yeah. And so these are just some common misconceptions. And so I, I mention that because an awareness, even a basic awareness of what's involved in textual criticism can be of value in ministry in that we can at least help uh, the people, you know, the laity of our church to understand that these differences between the English translations are not theologically problematic issues. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's really just a textual issue. But you could take the word son of God. Maybe they didn't really belong there in Mark 1.1. 1, 1, you'll find a gazillion other verses in the New Testament that call Jesus the son of God. Yes. And viewers, if you are, want to know more about that in particular, I had a great discussion with Mark Ward over at Faith Life and Lagos. And we talked about the, the King James only and the whole push behind some people, why they criticize modern translations. And you know, Mark's a friend of the channel, and, and I encourage you to follow him as well. But that is what I've found. And, and Mark agreed with this, not all, but most people who are the most dogmatic about particular English translations are the least familiar with text criticism. 
and how right. it actually works and how translation works. So the beware viewers, I think, should be aware of those confident voices that are dogmatically proclaiming this Bible version is doing this and this Bible version is doing that. And they just give little piecemeal examples, but they right. don't actually explain the process the why. Right. Um, so you mentioned, so tell me the title of your, this, your doctrinal work again. You yeah, said earlier. The, sub, <laughs> the subloco notes in the former prophets of Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia. Yes. So, so I wanted to ask you the subloco notes. Now that sounds Spanish. Yes. That sounds yeah, like no, Latin. less than crazy. So close enough though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what are the subloco notes? Now the, the former right. prophets, also is a term that some people may not have heard before. So break down right. that we know what, so we've established what BHS is. Now, yep. what are the subloco notes? And then what are the former prophets? Yeah, so I get right, working backwards. So we've got BHS, it's the critical edition, the scholarly edition of the, the Hebrew Bible that gives us manuscript evidence to sort through. Um, the former prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. In the Jewish tradition, um, the uh, Joshua, Judges, and Samuel, and Kings are not looked at as historical books principally. They're looked at as prophetic books. Interesting. And so, yeah, yeah. So the Hebrew Bible, um, you know, the manuscripts that we use are Jewish manuscripts. They're produced by Jews, not Christians. And unlike in Christianity, the Jewish tradition, the Hebrew Bible is divided into three components. And we use the acronym Tanakh, Tanakh. And so uh, in English, we'll work with the letters T and K. T is for Torah, which means, uh, you know, many people might be familiar with the term the law of Moses. Mm -hmm. So Genesis through Deuteronomy, that is the Torah. Nivi'im, the N in Tanakh, means prophets. And then K is for Kituvim, which means everything that's not Torah and prophets. So, um, you know, things like Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs and uh, Chronicles actually go in there. But uh, the prophets are divided up into two subcomponents. We have the latter prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12, not 13, the 12 minor prophets. Daniel is not in the prophetic uh, uh, subcorpus there. So... Uh, the latter prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets. The former prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in the Hebrew Bible and Hebrew manuscripts, after the book of Deuteronomy comes Joshua, then Judges, not Ruth, and, and Samuel and, and uh, Kings. So, um, yeah, so that's the former prophets. So that book deals with just Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Now, the subloco notes are a group of uh, textual notes um, that are in BHS that one of the editors added. And, and he would add, whenever there was a problem, he'd add an index number and he would write subloco, which means there was supposed to be a discussion about these problematic notes um, that he was going to publish in a later edition. Well, he died before he published that edition. What was and so, what, is, uh, what does subloco actually literally mean from Latin? 
Yeah, so subloco, it's it's essentially referring to, you, you know, it's it, it essentially means like, you know, um, beneath. And so the, the way BHS was constructed, unlike the New Testament, the Hebrew Bible contains a system of quality control, which involves some interpretation, but it's a system of quality control called the Masorah. And the Masorah includes everything from the vowel points on Hebrew words, the, the vowel letters that were added in the Middle Ages. Um, it includes a bunch of small marginal notes, and the notes on the side are called the Masorah Parva or Masorah Ketana, the small Masorah. And then there's the Masorah Magna or Masorah Gadola, which is the big Masorah. And so every page in the uh, Hebrew Bible in a medieval manuscript um, is going to have the text, you know, the actual consonant letters of the Hebrew text. It's going to have pointings for vowel markers. It's going to have accent marks or cantillation marks. That's part of the Masorah. And then it's going to have those notes on the side, the Masorah Parva and the Masorah Gedola, um, uh, which are quality control notes, essentially, to ensure that the Hebrew Bible, the text as the scribes received it, would be transmitted accurately. Because it was done in a day and age, obviously, when there was no printing press. And so because of the complexity and the length of the Hebrew Bible, the scribes whom we call Masoretes, needed to ensure that the text was copied accurately. Now, the quality control system ended up having corruptions of its own or complexities of its own. And so some of those majorly problematic notes were indicated, kind of like what we saw in Mark 1.1, with a reference number and the note subloco. And that means the reader was supposed to consult this other volume for a commentary, which never appeared. And so essentially, I wrote a commentary on, I, th I think it was like 415 scribal notations that come from medieval manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible mm. um, to discuss what those complexities really are. Needless to say, a very niche um, uh, subfield of research. It's not hitting so, the bestseller list. No, no. In fact, I haven't made a dime <laughs> off the publication. I think the if you go on Amazon, the book goes for like one hundred ninety eight dollars. And yeah. uh, <laughs> so, no. There, the the truth is, uh, when we had an annual meeting at SBL, uh, you know, that dealt with these types of things, you know, there were really. I don't know, you know, 25 people to 50 people on the planet who could really yeah. appreciate what was going on there. Right, right. Um, but essentially it was, I did it because it was, you know, something that nobody had done before. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do something new, but it also um, helped me, I think, to be able to fill in a void in scholarship. But the value in that sort of thing where initially people don't see the value of it is what it forced me to do is with a magnum, actually with a magnifying glass, get in there and work with manuscripts and understand what actually went into producing copies of the copies 
mm. of the Hebrew Bible. Mm. And what became clear to me through the process is that there is no way that a manuscript could be copied without mistakes creeping in. And every manuscript that we have has corruptions. It has mistakes because, and, and you know, being a little bit theological here, God allowed people to do this work, human beings, just like you and me. Mm-hmm. And so it gave me an appreciation, in a sense, for what the biblical text is and what we can know about it and what the biblical text is not. So is the Bible text letter perfect? No, absolutely not. There is no such thing as a letter perfect edition of the Bible that is extant or in existence today. And yet the the text that we have, the medieval text that I worked on, is essentially the same text that was in Jesus's day becoming the leading most popular text of the Hebrew Bible. And so were there discrepancies over the course of, you know, the thousand years? Yes, there were discrepancies, but they were surprisingly small and relatively insignificant. That's what every textual critic I've ever talked to has noted and has been very, uh, made that very clear. What, right. The famous example with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Great Isaiah Scroll, and when you analyze and then look at, okay, actual differences, not change difference in spelling this word or it's different right. pronunciation or even a, a, a word out of order or something. But there it came down to a handful of differences that, that really made a difference in right. in such a massive text that's so ancient. And that to me has always been something that it shows God in the process is is God mm-hmm. producing his word is not his word does not depend on letter perfect carbon copies of a text, but rather, and, and that's this, this comes along when people have misconceptions about how we got our Bibles. They think it's like a long game of telephone, you know, like right. Bibles today are based on a copy of a copy of a copy. When in reality, Bibles today, English Bibles today are based on laying out as many of the copies and manuscripts and variants as humanly possible, comparing them, figuring out, doing the work of, okay, what is the most likely variant? How did this one arise? How did, you know, how did a manuscript have uh, uh, in it and this manuscript not? What plausible reasons could there be? Did it get you know, erased? Did it get misheard? Did it get miscopied? Did two letters get switched? Is it an abbreviation? Because words like right. son of God would be abbreviated because That's right. writing was not cheap back then. So there's so many, and we touch on these in Bible for the rest of us. Uh, we give examples of Old Testament, you know, things like metathesis and, um, and uh, homeoteleuton and, uh, you know, all of the fun ones that people love to throw out at cocktail parties. But Right. <laughs> the reason that we do that is so that people can see that modern English Bibles take all of that into account. It's right. not like they're based on one manuscript. And if that manuscript has an error in it, well, that's what you're reading. It's right. Be careful. You know, Christians, readers, non-Christian reader, anybody reading the Bible, but particularly Christian readers who care about this stuff. Read the footnotes in your Bibles. There, there's yeah. a reason that they're there. Read the preface 
in any translation of the Bible you're doing. It will talk about whether the Old Testament of that translation is based on the Masoretic text. Or they'll, some will even say the base text is the Leningrad Codex, that, which is essentially the BHS, which now BHQ, I think, is the next version of that. And you can talk about that in a second. But the, all of the, none of this stuff is hidden. It's not Da Vinci Code, folks. Like this right. stuff is not tucked away and, and the Catholic Church is keeping it under wraps or the Orthodox Church or whatever. No, it's all out there in the open. Every critical edition you pick up, it will tell you all of this stuff right there on the page. It's just a question of, do you have the competency to read the notes or not? And that does right. take learning, yeah. but it's like any field of study. You have to have a basic competency the further you want to go into that field. And so you've right. gone really far, pretty narrow in a focus, you know, like that dissertation at least, very, very focused on a very, like you said, it's a very niche thing. And, and my roommate, who I mentioned earlier, Mike, he used to say, yeah, my uh, I think I think Doug Stewart was his advisor. It might have been Niehaus or one of the other Old Testament guys that were in Cornwall. But they said when he was talking about what he wanted to do and going on to Ph.D. work, they said, listen, don't do this if you can't be content with the fact that eight people in the world will end up reading your stuff, because right. that's the what's going to happen. But that's in any field of study in every right. and, and human knowledge is advanced corporately by millions of people going so deep and so narrow and only a few others coming along. But then that trickles down that has a cascade effect all the way down into somebody who can't even read the Bible, but they're listening to a Sunday school teacher, read them a story out right. of their revised standard version or whatever version of the Bible they're reading. And to yeah. me, that's the beauty of it. The The body of Christ analogy is nowhere more crystal clear than in the world of biblical scholarship, because you need every member of the body. Even the boring ones are important because they are contributing to the discussion and to the advancement of knowledge. And, and not everything is for everybody. And not everything right. should be at a popular level. Some people even watching this are probably like, all right, you guys lost me 30 minutes ago, but that's yep. okay though. That's all right. We're, you know, we're, we're, like I said, we're pulling back the hood. Tell me about BHQ versus BHS. Cause I came through seminary 20 years ago. BHS was, that's all we had. That's what we used. Uh, right. BHQ is, is, it's not fully available yet. I believe it's. Yeah. So I, um, was invited to the annual meeting of the BHQ uh, participants. I, I think it was like 2018. And for viewers, like just so you know, BHQ yeah. is the successor ah, right. to BHS. It's going to yeah, be like, break gonna, the Quinta. Yeah, it's going to Quinta, the fifth edition. It's going to take the place of BHS, just like BHS took the place of earlier edition of the Biblica Hebraica. So Chris is, is part of the group that's working on it. And it's not like writing a book. It's, it's yeah. a decades long endeavor. And so right. what, what was your role in it or what is your yeah, role? Yeah. So I, I was only involved with a short time just because of transitions, um, you know, in my own career, but uh, it's because of my work with the subloco notes, I was dealing with problems in the Masora. And so it, those side notes mm -hmm. in the manuscripts, and so one of the 
initiatives of uh, BHQ is to present all of the information that's on every page of the manuscript. BHS in the previous editions did not do that. They presented the text, the small Masora notes with some editorial changes. But what BHQ decided to do was to present the text, the biblical text, as it appears in one specific manuscript, the Leningrad Codex, in addition to presenting also the entire Masora, even when the text or the Masora is in error, even where there's a corruption. So basically, BHQ is a reproduction of a manuscript from the early 11th century. And then down below is an apparatus, uh, just like BHS has, but made simpler, easier to read. A lot of those Latin terms were taken out. Good. Um, but in addition to that, they have added a commentary uh, by the editors to explain uh, some of the more problematic issues. So in cases where we're not really sure if the text of the Leningrad Codex is right. Maybe maybe the spelling is corrupted or the division between two words is incorrect. So they'll put a, a, a comment in there to help the reader understand how they think the problematic issue should be resolved. Mm -hmm. And so I had helped for a little bit with the um, the you know some of the issues with the Masora. And uh, so very small role, but unfortunately, it was one of those things I just could not continue with because um, it doesn't pay. And <laughs> I was at a time where I was in a, a job transition and the whole thing. Right. But the project is just going on and on and on. Um, is there even a finish line remotely? I, I don't think so right now. I mean, they're getting much closer. And I know that there is a schedule for... Um, the the publication of various volumes, but there have been so many setbacks along the way, you know, because a lot of the scholars who have worked on this project have been veteran scholars. And sadly, many of them have, have died yeah. during, you know, their work. And so, um, you know, they're not able to, you know, complete their tasks. Someone else has to pick it up. Again, most casual Bible readers don't even have an inkling of an understanding of what is involved in getting a, an English Bible to them. And, and so, right. you know, when you're talking, it's, it's like a, the image I think of as a cathedral, you know, medieval cathedrals, you laid the stone knowing you will never see this. You will never mm -hmm. see this completed. Those who lay the first stones, this is going to take a century or longer to build. And it's it's like that with with massive scholarly things like BHQ, you're talking about do, doing work that's where I mean you will spend months of your life analyzing a word <laughs> or mm -hmm. a phrase in a manuscript. And did you ever see the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi? No, I haven't. haven't oh, seen that. okay, so. It's fascinating documentary. I think it's all, it used to be on Netflix. It might be on YouTube now, but it's about a guy. Right. His name is Jiro. And he was 80s, 90s, maybe sushi master. Uh, Michelin star. His restaurant was eight seats. I believe it was eight seats at a sushi counter in a basement with no advertising, no nothing. 
uh, I think it was a six month waiting list to get there. The meal was 300 bucks and you didn't get to pick the menu. He would make like something like 12 pieces of sushi or 14, something like that. Anyway, so the documentary is all about this guy's passion for sushi and and him having like a 40 or 60 year old apprentice who has to work for years before you can even touch the rice. Like you've got to do, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things that, and I think as a scholar, I think you, I mean, it's just a great documentary in general. It's very engaging, but the thing that blows people away about it, why it was so acclaimed was because it showed this focus on craftsmanship and, and excellence that was seemingly over something as mundane as a little piece of nigiri. Mm -hmm. And it, and it, and the, but the way he talked about it and the effort and what went into it and the practice and, and it, so when I hearing discussions of, and going to SBL and seeing biblical scholarship and what it all goes on behind the scenes, it brings to mind that kind of thing. You have to have a passion for biblical scholarship to a degree that seems insane to yeah. other people. That's about but right. It really does. It, at the same time, though, for at least for a Christian scholar, there's to me, there's something incredibly comforting about that because it's a it's a passion guided by bringing the word of God to people. Right. And so there there literally is eternal stakes involved in what you're doing, even if what you're doing is trying to tell, is this a dot or a dash? Is this a yeah. smudge from the vellum? or the manuscript ink, or is this what the person, you know, like, right. There's a reason that so much work goes into it. And we on the popular end are the recipients of that. We're the right. recipients. Of, so when you're, when you're, you know, when you were laboring away and what seems to be laboring in obscurity or laboring in vain to a lot of scholars, especially young scholars starting out, just, I want them to be encouraged. And, right. and to know that there's really, there is a payoff, even yep. if it's never seen, even if, it, you know, you, ne you may never live to see the fruits of what you do. But if it's being guided by God and if you're fulfilling your calling as a scholar, then right. that's when you just have to trust some water, some harvest. And I'm going to yep. water in the trenches or in the library stacks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, but it and it was it was part of that, though, where, you know, that caused me to write Jesus's Bible, because <laughs> there was that uh, element of dissatisfaction mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm I'm a people person. And even though I have spent most of my time uh, in, you know, an academic environment, um, it is important for me to get stuff out there. And that's why I wrote that. And even though some people would say, oh, it's still kind of academic. Um I look at that book this way is it was my best effort to distill some of these complexities mm -hmm. uh, and to provide brief explanations that people could get their minds around anyway and, and point them to other sources if they wanted further, you know, more, more detailed, more comprehensive discussion. Yeah. And it's needed. I mean, it really is needed and it's, and there, I think, and and I think Disciple Dojo's growing viewership is evidence, at least, of a small part of it. That there's a hunger among people to know stuff. There's a, yeah. I, mean, I tell people that think about 
think about Joe Rogan, his podcast, right? Joe Rogan's this jujitsu dude, bro, fear factor, actor, comedian. I mean, he's kind of, he's an entertainer, but his podcast, the number one podcast in the world, or at least always in the top three podcasts in the world is, will be him sitting down with some analytical physicist or some AI intelligence guy or some nutritionist or, I mean, just random person. I've had, I know two, two of my friends have been on his podcast, both for martial arts related stuff. And they'll talk for four hours and people Hmm. will listen. Millions of people, dude, bros working at gas stations, doing jujitsu housewife, you know, like all of that. There's a, there's an audience for anything that is intellectually interesting. And to me, biblical scholarship is one of those things. It gets presented by, especially by preachers or maybe popularizers sometimes as, as dry or as boring, you know, the whole, how many angels dancing on the head of a pen? That's what theologians sit around (laughs) argue about. And which is in and of itself, not true. That's actually an urban legend, but the whole idea of it, not being interesting has never made sense to me. If I pick up a Bible, the first part I always pick up and read the preface to that Bible because it's going to have all of this, you know, interesting, fascinating, kind of nerdy stuff that's then going to tell you, oh, that's why this translation translates this way. That's why the books are in this order. And and part of reviewing study Bibles here on the channel, I mean, we've reviewed over 50 study Bibles, and it's because of that. I want people to get into these resources and see these resources. I think your book does a great job of it. Your book, uh, I found myself really enjoying it. There were some, I don't, I'd have to go back and look. I don't remember off the top of my head. There were a few points where I was like, Hey, I don't know, Chris, I, I don't know if I agree with that, but you know, I, but, but I, you're explaining it really well and it's making a lot of sense. And, and I think that that's the, the value of it. You know, I think you interact with right. some of the other scholars who I've read and appreciated. And sometimes you're uh, you know, sometimes you criticize them for something or, but then sometimes you'll uh, say, and as so-and-so has said, like, it, it's a discussion. It's an interaction. Right. It's, 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 we just need more of it. And that's, that's, yeah. that's why we're doing what we're doing. So, so in new Testament studies, there are, there are trends, there are things that come and go there, you know, like the quest for the historical Jesus, and then the next quest of the historical Jesus. And then the third quest for, you know, th- these kind of waves, uh, past probably 15 and there these are like decade waves not year by year but the past since i was in seminary you know the the new perspective on paul and that's still kind of it's i feel like it's kind of surpassed its heyday in terms of being talked about but there are these scholarship trends and so i'm wondering if you are aware of any or if there are any that are old testament focused you know like i would think of in the maybe late 1800s through the early 20th century, the various documentary hypotheses and redaction theory, source theory, the, the, these were kind of the thing that Old Testament scholars were putting a lot of energy into, which they don't seem to really do that much anymore. I mean, those kind of have yeah. seemed to have had their heyday in terms of dominating the conversation. Yeah, and so I, I don't think anything really dominates the conversation anymore for the simple reason that scholars, I mean, you look at the attendance at SBL, for instance, the number of presenters, the number of sessions, and the growth of the field. And 
in, in many ways problematic in that, you know, institutions of higher education are taking more doctoral students in the PhD programs than there are jobs for. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's even at the major institutions, you know, they're, they're over enrolling. And then you have some of these smaller schools where truthfully the graduates will not have uh, much of a shot at a job at all, but they're doing research and they're, they're producing research. And so there really is just this saturation where you have so many people doing so many different things and you can't keep up with it all. Mm. So it's, it's really a very different landscape than it was say a hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, or, you know, um, you know, when you, when you look at the history of the scholarship of the Hebrew Bible, you know, Wellhausen to Gunkel and, and so on and others, the field was a lot smaller Right. The amount of available evidence was a heck of a lot smaller. To be able to really know the whole field, um, it was more of a reality then. It's simply impossible now. The One of the interesting trends, though, that I saw at Jewish Theological Seminary is this shift towards the interpretation history of the Bible as opposed to the prehistory of the Bible. Um, just a ton of interest in the the broader field of the interpretation of the bible you see a lot of jewish scholarship you know dealing with the new testament for instance mm-hmm. and um, a lot of cross pollination so i would say a heavy shift to the interpretation of the bible mm-hmm. has been a big one and that's even affected uh, textual criticism because you know many text critics instead of looking for trying to get back to the original text you know they get into the unique features of specific manuscripts and you know the the interpretive features that are there in the copies so that even has a bearing on textual criticism over the last you know from my perspective 20 yeah. years maybe it's longer than that but and yeah, uh, I wanted to ask what was that like as uh, you know how how were you treated how were how was your studies viewed you know it was a very different environment from an evangelical Christian seminary, but it was the best thing for me mm-hmm. um, because being a fish out of water just helped me to see so many things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, things that I never gave a second thought to, it got me questioning those things. Mm-hmm. And it didn't really have any bearing on my faith. It gave me a deeper appreciation for the lengthy um, and robust Jewish tradition of looking at the Bible and, you know, from a faith perspective, we don't see eye to eye on these things, but, um, you know, I've learned an immense uh, amount of uh, just information about the Hebrew Bible's complex history, not only of transmission, but of interpretation. And so, yeah, being a fish out of water was the best thing Mm. for me. I was going to say, I imagine that it it would have to have a refining aspect to it. uh, Yeah. Where it clarify, it helps you clarify and see blind spots, right? And and question. I mean, that's part of that. That's a bigger cultural discussion that we're having in this country with things about white supremacy and uh, right. you know b- being a minority in a culture and and intersectionality and all of those things. You don't recognize your own culture if it is the dominant one or if it is the norm right. in your setting. But when you go out of that, 
then you're given a better lens to look at your culture. And that my whole life has been among evangelical Christianity in the traditional, like I tell people the Christianity today as an outlet type Christianity, you know, broad evangelicalism. Right. And there's a tendency I see when it comes to evangelicals and our Jewish friends that's either kind of like a a leaning into the supersessionism of like or, you know full on replacement theology and almost looking down upon Judea not not Jewish people but Judaism kind of as mm-hmm. like okay well that's you know there's nothing really to learn from that it's nice it's sentimental uh, we'll wish you happy Hanukkah but there's nothing of real value there so I'm not just I'm right. just gonna you go do your thing I will do ours. To the other extreme among evangelicals, where Israel and Judaism almost takes on this, like I've I've said, I don't know if it's quite almost like a fetish quality among Christians, where it's it's like everything Jewish is automatically better and automatically more holy. So we're going to the whole sacred names movement and Hebrew roots movement. And and if you celebrate Christmas, you're not really a good Christian because you're not following Messiah, Yeshua. And I, I feel like both of those are kind of come from not having a a familiar, just a familiarity with good, thoughtful Jewish scholarship and, and, and thoughtful Judaism. Um, Yeah. I'm inclined to agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, so I I think they're hyper reactionary. I mean, you know, one example, and I I happened to look at one of your posts on Facebook, and there was a a, a viewer uh, who asked a question about Jephthah's vow. Mm-hmm. And that I was glad that I saw that because David Marcus, who, you know, my dissertation advisor before he was into Masora, um, you know, he did a lot with text studies and uh um he has a very short book. Uh, I think it's like 60 pages or something on Jephthah's vow, hmm. but it opened up that passage to me. And, you know, we don't have the time to get into it, but it, it was valuable because he looked at the text. He looked at some of the ambiguities in the text, but then he also looked at, at some of the Parshanim, the, the medieval Jewish rabbis and some of the great observations that they had. And, you know, it's from stuff like that, learning about the interpretive um, advances mm-hmm. in in in, uh, in biblical interpretation in the Middle Ages um, that I learned at Jewish Theological Seminary that really helped me. And Jephthah's vow is just a wonderful example. So, you know, for the viewer who asked that question, I'm not giving you an answer today. Go read David Marcus's book. I think it's available for free online these days in PDF form. So David Marcus, uh, I think it, the title is just Jephthah's Vow. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, I remember teaching through Judges here on in our video series and yep. coming to that one. And you've got a, you, you know, it's, it's one of those where I'm like, I'm not going right. to give you, I'm not going to give you a strong yes, this, this you know, like you're going to have to wrestle with this yourself. I think that's intentional. Right. Um, but I, the more I study, the more I start to think almost all the ambiguities are intentional, uh, not all, but let's say most, <laughs> I, I, I sort of lean towards rhetorical device. Yeah. Yeah. Because part of these interviews are wanting to get people more involved in the discussion and more literate. So give me two or three, either must read resources or mm. names of individuals whose work have benefited you the most 
or you think are the most uh, important for any budding student of Old Testament biblical studies, maybe text criticism, but just people who want to get more into the Hebrew Bible, who are mm. some that you would put on that list or who would you point people to? Obviously your book, yeah. obviously Jesus's Bible. Yeah, That's no, obviously. I, I put myself down the list. Yeah, right. So start the <laughs> very kind of you. Yeah. Um, the, well, it, I guess in all seriousness, what I did do with that book is for its brevity, I think it's 120 pages or something mm -hmm. like that. The bibliography is robust mm -hmm. and that was done intentionally because I wanted people to see the breadth of resources that I use in coming to my conclusions. Right. So I have no problem with people disagreeing with me, but at least when they read what I write, if they have a problem with it, they can see that I didn't come to these um, decisions rashly. Mm -hmm. And the books that I put in that bibliography, yes, yeah, some of them are, are hyper-technical, but many of them are, you know, relatively accessible. Mm -hmm. And are all, in my opinion, important reads for various reasons. I would say the the most important book that I read um, during the course of my studies and career has been Alexander Rofe, R-O-F-E, uh, An Introduction to the Hebrew Bible as Literature. It's not your standard OT intro book. Um, there are lots of good ones out there, but this actually teaches one how to actually read the Bible. Mm. Um, so I, yeah, of all the books I have, if I could only keep one, that would be it. In, in all truthfulness, you know, my doctoral advisor, David Marcus, is, I think, to study his works mm -hmm. will give someone um, a good sense of the breadth of the field of Hebrew Bible, including textual criticism. Um, but in addition, it will help one to see what it means to be a serious scholar. That's more than enough for anybody who's out there wanting to head down this road or at least peek down the tunnel and see how far right. it well goes. If you could share briefly, maybe one or two Old Testament, we looked at Mark 1, 1, but Old Testament examples where text criticism makes a difference. One or two, it doesn't matter. Just something that, that really solidifies or crystallizes in the mind of somebody for whom this is still all an abstract discussion, what right. difference text criticism makes. The example that always comes to mind, truthfully, is Deuteronomy 32, mm -hmm. 8 through 10. And um, I'm going to so pull that up on the screen here so folks awesome. can see. On the left, just for people viewing, because Chris can't see my screen, there is the uh, Hebrew text, the Masoretic text on the left. Then next to that, I've got the NIV 2011, then the NRSV UE, updated New Revised Standard, and then the ESV. So we have a range of translations as well as the Hebrew text. So why is this an interesting, why, why pick this one out? Yeah, so the, the sons of Israel um, is one reading. It's the traditional reading that we find in um, the Masoretic text. And yet the, the English translations show, because they all differ. Some say sons of Israel, but others say instead gods or sons of the gods, which is a term for angels. Um, 
all of these readings are attested in the first century, and it's unclear how they developed. And if you read the commentary in Biblia Hebraica Quinta, you know, a, a few views are given on how these readings uh, developed. But it seems to me, and in keeping with a, a quote-unquote rule of textual criticism, which is more of a guideline, is that the most difficult reading or the more difficult reading when we're presented with two or more options, that's the one that's to be preferred. And so when we look at this and we say there are different options and sorry for the, uh, the background here, my dog is uh, going crazy in the background, <laughs> but uh, we love dogs um, here in the dojo. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but when we ask ourselves, which is the easier reading and which is the more difficult one? The easier reading is clearly the sons of Israel, right? So that, um, you know, the most high is the same as um, Yahweh in verse nine or the Lord, you know, as most translations put it. Mm -hmm. The more difficult reading theologically anyway, is um, if we read uh, the sons of gods, or, or just the gods themselves in at the end of verse 8 instead of the sons of Israel, because that seems to presuppose that there are other divine beings. That doesn't sound monotheistic at all. Right. And so when we, when we ask ourselves, which is likely to be the older reading, it's the, the guidelines of or, or the wisdom of the field of textual criticism says, well, generally, it's the more difficult reading. And if that's the case, then it means that this more polytheistic um, or we would really say henotheistic, but, you know, a, a more polytheistic sounding perspective was actually original to Deuteronomy. Now, there are scholars who see it differently. There are some scholars who argue that these um, variant readings didn't occur until almost the time of Jesus anyway. The problem I have with that, just on a, a strictly academic perspective or from an academic perspective, is what would cause someone to introduce these readings into the texts. And so my assumption, and I admit it is an assumption, is that originally Deuteronomy kind of like what you find in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and even I think Psalm 88 seems to allude to the fact that there are other gods out there. That's probably the original reading. Now, we're not talking here about metaphysics. We're, we're not settling a theological dispute about whether a monotheistic view or a polytheistic view is the right one. You know, I'm a monotheist by faith, but just in terms of the text itself, it seems that the text would support a more polytheistic perspective. And to me, as a historian, that makes sense, because when you think about, um, you know, the the history of uh, ancient Israel, they maybe they shouldn't have been, but the Old Testament text says that for all intents and purposes, almost all of them are polytheists. Well, that's the and, biggest critique of the prophets against right. Israel was their syncretism. Yeah. yeah. Sure. So, and that raises a question, well, if, 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 if a monotheistic worldview is the right one, why would God have ever allowed 
you know, such a reading to be there in the first place. And so people may object to this perspective on theological grounds. Well, at that point, I can't argue it anymore, you know, um, but from a historical perspective, I would, you know, as objective as I can be, I would have to conclude that the more difficult reading is indeed the more original reading, but I may be wrong. Yeah, that's a good example. And, and you know, people have asked me about this. Uh, I think Carmen and I even, Carmen Imes and I talked about this in the episode with her because people, so many people have asked her, what's up with the sons of God and uh, yeah. the divine count, you know, and, and her friend Mike Heiser has made quite a splash in the world of biblical studies, or at least popular readers of biblical right. studies with his work on the, the unseen realm and angels and right. demons. So this is a, this is a great example of a passage that's significant, but it's also, I like how you're talking about, it's a text critical issue that people need to be aware of. The ESV footnote says, the, compare the Dead Sea Scroll and the Septuagint because the Masoretic text says sons of Israel. So it comes down to, for, again, for viewers who this is all completely brand new, you have a Hebrew text, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you have a Greek translation of the Hebrew text, the Septuagint, and they both date to the time of Jesus, roughly. They say sons of God or the gods, sons of the most high, or have you, not most high, sons of the gods or the gods. So they say one thing, the Hebrew text is not actually older because the Hebrew text is the Masoretic text, which is a medieval manuscript. And that says the sons of Israel. So it's an example of how you can't always assume that just because the Hebrew text says this, that that's the oldest reading uh, because the yeah. Dead Sea Scrolls show that, no, there's a Hebrew text, Dead Sea Scrolls, and it says the other one. So that's a great, I, I really hope that viewers, even if you can't, viewers, if you're watching this and you can't wrap your head around all the details, it doesn't matter. That's what commentaries right. and, and journal articles are for to really dig into this. But just to give you an idea of why text critical work matters and what difference it makes. Now, is this a salvific issue? Does how God divided the nations or allotted the nations and and the metaphysical uh, identity of angels and, and all of that, is that a salvation issue? I don't, I don't think so. Right. Is it a fascinating theological issue? Of course it is. Nope. <laughs> it's worth thinking about. The example that I use, which I've, we've done here on the channel, is Goliath's height. And whether it's six cubits in a span or four cubits in a span. And that's another example of where the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint both say four cubits in a span. The Masoretic text yeah. says six cubits in a span. And uh, so. Or when Saul became king. Yeah. You know, he was one year old. old. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Those are great. Well, hopefully reader uh, viewers are just getting an idea of why this matters and, and text criticism, why it's interesting, because in Chris's book, he goes into more detail. He gives a number of examples and 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 has illustrations and pictures. And actually, you can see the text on the page and parts of it. And so go read his book. Go read his book. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Let's finish up with, um, yeah. we're all about shameless plugs here in the dojo. So I get asked all the time about these viral videos that Christians love to share that talk all about Hebrew. 
everything mm-hmm. from every time you breathe, you're saying the name Yahweh to the whole gospel is contained in the letters of Bereshith in Genesis. And, and it really means God will live in the tent of man and something, something, something. And they're usually TikTok videos. They're usually YouTube videos. They're quick. They're pithy. They're memorable. And they're just not true. At least everything I know about biblical scholarship, they're not true. The idea of the folded napkin and that being the tradition that the the host is going to come back to the table. And so Jesus leaving the folded shroud at the tomb was every Jewish person would know it's him saying he's coming back. These stories circulate and Christians share them because we want to believe them. Because yeah. anything in the Hebrew is automatically more esoteric and cool and authentic and this and that. But most of the time, they're just nonsense. And yeah. so how do you encourage people to not get sucked right. in by other than, hey, verify something before you share it on social media? But we can't always do that immediately. So just right. a general rule of thumb, how do we know when something is probably not accurate that's being presented yeah. to Christians. Yeah. If it's being shared on TikTok, um, <laughs> I would say, assume that it's not true. Um, <laughs> Good rule. So, because generally TikTok is not the uh, vehicle for disseminating truth in biblical studies. <laughs> I'm going to be very measured in my. <laughs> very comments. diplomatic, but I agree. Uh, yes. Yes. But what I what I would say in terms of some practical advice is for those who are genuinely interested in finding out more about these significant cultural issues, there there's a two volume set by InterVarsity Press. Um, I, I always get these titles confused. They all run together. But the the Bible background commentary of the New Testament, I think it is, mm-hmm. and the Bible background commentary of the Old Testament. Yeah. Put together IBP, by, Bible background commentary. The, yeah, there it is. Thank you. These <laughs> titles all just get jumped. They, I, I, um, the, they're fantastic works. And now, just because something doesn't appear in there doesn't mean it's not true. But I think by using those really concise and very affordable tools, mm-hmm. it will help one to develop a sense of whether something makes sense or is worth investigation when you hear it online. Mm-hmm. And and furthermore, it's a reliable way to find out about the cool types of things that you're already interested in. So I would say, forget about TikTok, switch over to the IVP Bible background commentary series, and you'll be very glad you did. It's more yeah. profitable. Yeah, I, that's great advice. I heartily agree. I definitely recommend those. The New Testament one is by Craig Keener is the editor and John Walton edited the Old Testament volume. Is this a fair thing to say? I think my own understanding is that much of what gets read into the Jewish background of Jesus type presentations, not all, but much of it actually comes from, I think, either the Mishnah or or something later than the first century. Um I may be yeah, supporting so, that, but so a lot of these practices of like, oh, every Hebrew boy would know X, Y, Z. When you look at the source, it's it's a it's a second or third century or later Jewish source rather yeah. than first century Galilee. Is that am I in the right ballpark? That's a tricky one to answer because, like the works that I've the work that I've done with the Targums, the you know the Aramaic Bible, um, the what we essentially call the Aramaic Targumim today 
are all appear to be written, at least in their current forms. They're they're redacted into their current forms after the time of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But there is little doubt that some of the traditions that are in there surely date back to the time of Jesus. And so the the question about can you use a later source to determine something that was going on in the time of Jesus is not an easy one. And you have to really be ready to roll up your sleeves and and, – you know, do a lot of investigative work on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, there, a lot of times there is not going to be proof. What you're going to get is, uh, you know, pieces of evidence of various shades of reliability. Mm-hmm. And, and that's because in scholarship, we don't deal with proof anyway. We deal with evidence, mm-hmm. convincing evidence, Moderately convincing evidence, eh, not so convincing evidence, but we don't deal with proof because there were no video cameras and, you know, that sort of thing. And so there's always going to be room for discussion. I would say really the best source that I'm aware of, uh, in addition to the IVP Bible background commentary, um, I I don't I haven't used the the New Testament volume a lot lately. So I, I know Keener draws a lot from. Jewish tradition. So I assume there's a lot of that in there, but the Jewish study Bible, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the Jewish annotated new Testament, which is done by Jewish scholars. And it's a very competent work. Christians who are not familiar with, with Jewish, uh, you know, sacred sources like the, the Talmud and the Mishnah and and the Targumim and all that will probably need some guidance to use it most effectively. But it still, to my knowledge, is the best source. And I would say, if you're interested in this kind of thing, go and consult that those two volumes first, and then you'll probably be on solid footing. To me, I think it's helpful for our viewers because it shows that when you see these teachings that are presented so winsomely and so convincingly, and they, and they state things as if they're absolutely true, that's when I think a healthy skepticism should pop up, especially if it's something that makes so much sense that we want to believe. I think we should be like, that's very interesting. Let me go check on that. Uh, Because it doesn't mean you reject it. You know, we don't want to be naturally suspicious of everything and just, I'm not going to believe it unless you... Right. You know, okay. whenever people tell me, especially I have friends that are kind of all over the spectrum and some in the more charismatic uh, and some in, in, in the more like Hebrew roots cultures... And whenever I, they'll, somebody will share something and it's really exciting and they're like, oh, I've, I've done my research and this means this and this. And it's something sometimes that I actually know is not true. I don't ever want to be like, no, you're dumb. That's not, you know, I always want to encourage the enthusiasm, <laughs> but yeah. temper the, uh, you know, just to show the limitations to say, listen, right. th- it's not like it's impossible, but it's certainly not definitive. And, and so... Yeah. Being able to hold we things in loose hands. Probability and plausibility, and but um, yeah. very often not definitiveness, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So then on that note, what about the Bible codes? 
you said there's no letter certainty, but if you feed the letters of the Hebrew Bible into a supercomputer, you can predict 9-11, you can predict the stock market, you can predict all this stuff because I watched the documentary yep. on the History Channel and it's pretty compelling. So. And I'm sure the dates of my birth and death and all of that are in there too. So <laughs> I, sorry, I shouldn't be snarky, but uh, no, the... <laughs> from on the Bible academic. codes, you're allowed to be snarky, I think. Okay, ahead, all tell right. Me, well, tell me why. Yeah. Tell me why you so, would not put much stock in the Bible codes. Yeah, and so for those who have stuck around this long and have tolerated the <laughs> arcane discussion about uh, my my dissertation work and the subloco notes, um, one of the things that those subloco notes deal with, in part, has to do with the presence and absence of optional letters in Hebrew words. So the example I give in my book, Jesus's Bible is, uh, you know, the first town I lived in was Foxborough, Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, if you watch a Patriots game these days, I think when they spell out Foxborough, it's F-O-X-B-O-R-O. But if you go to the common or, you know, what is the town green uh, in Foxborough, big sign up around the common, which spells it with its longer spelling ending in O-U-G-H. Mm. They're both legitimate spellings. Many words in Hebrew Bible had optional ways of spelling them. And spelling conventions changed over the course of the centuries too. And that's, you know, uh, just observable in manuscripts that we have today. They disagree on how to spell words. So if that's the case, and every letter matters, well, which manuscript are you using? There is no one letter perfect edition of the Bible. And when, when people talk about Bible code, the first question you ask is which text of the Bible are you using? Yeah. For those who just don't know anything about Bible codes, it's, it's not even getting into it, but you basically, somebody feeds a massive amount of data into a computer, a text, and then based on where the letters are in relation to each other in a grid when you lay them out, you can see where it's like a big word search and you can find words that supposedly have meaning. And, and it's, it, it doesn't work if the text is one letter off. If you move it one letter one way or the other, the whole thing breaks down. So right. the Bible codes is, it's just, it's modern day Gnosticism. Um, it it appeals to this esoteric, deeper, hidden meaning that is only able to be found by computers. And it's just, I have even less taste for it than you. I will be even more blunt than you. It's garbage. <laughs> it's nonsense. Don't pay one whit of attention to it. Uh, that's my own thing. That's not Christopher Doss' uh, words. Those are mine. Yep. Let's jump to um, somebody wanted to know, do you take a position on any particular Pentateuch Hebrew Bible source hypothesis? Do you are, are you a JEDP guy? Are you a JE guy? Are you a, a the Toledot are the sources and they were stitched together? Are you so? Yeah. Where, where do you end? Here, here's the bottom line is that there's not a single person who knows. <laughs> Nobody knows. And um, there are problems with every view that has ever been posited from Mosaic authorship. And there are major problems with Mosaic authorship that, mm -hmm. you know, the idea that Moses um, wrote, wrote about his own death. The well, it's and, and even more simply than that, the Torah never says that Moses wrote the Torah. Mm. It, it's just that simple. So it's not like, you know, I 
I have a book here by, oh, sorry, it's a green screen. So that green book did not show up well, but uh, let's <laughs> That was a great here. cover. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, don't use green books when you got a green screen. Okay, <laughs> so the Bible with and without Jesus. Mm-hmm. Okay, Amy Jill Levine and Mark Brettler, we know who wrote it. Okay, the letter to the Romans. It says Paul wrote it. There is no such statement there in in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, whatever you want to call it. Um what do we do about Jesus's statements when he refers to Moses? Well, you have to keep in mind that it is at the very least within the realm of possibility. And a lot of this ties into one's own Christology too. So, um, but it's at least within the realm of possibility that Jesus works with operating assumptions, that this is how people think about it. And if that's the case, then do we really take anything that Jesus says, uh, you know, with regard to that alludes to mosaic authorship as necessarily being an affirmation that Moses actually wrote it? So I'm not saying I'm right. All I'm saying is that there's room for discussion here. And so it's something that we don't need to really dig our heels in on. The JEDP piece, essentially, that the Torah as we have it, the Hebrew Torah, is derived from four independent literary sources, J, E, D, and P, which were, you know, essentially 10th, 9th, um, 7th, and 6th centuries, and, you know, kind of woven together uh, at the end there, um, had problems from its inception. You know, even Gunkel, his form critical work undermined JEDP. This is something that Alexander Rofe, I think, talks about in his book. So, even from the time of Wellhausen, there have been problems with the four-source hypothesis. So I think what is far more likely is that we have something kind of like what I said at the beginning, that much of this, many of these traditions developed orally, you know, grew into literary pieces over time. But the other piece is that they're also, the Pentateuch contains reinterpretations of, of certain laws. So why is it that we have three different forms of the law on slaves and, and what to do with them? It really doesn't make sense. And so what makes sense to me um, is that over time, the Pentateuch was updated for new social circumstances, because otherwise I have a hard time making sense of what appear to be contradictions within the Pentateuch. If someone follows that line of thinking, then obviously it's going to change their view on biblical authorship, uh, you know, at least the authorship of the Pentateuch. And it creates some fundamental questions um, about, you know, those, those broader questions of what the Bible is, what the Bible is not, that kind of thing. So at the end of the day, it's a super complex issue. Nobody has resolved it. Um, I think what's important is that we at least accept that there are tensions there that need to be addressed and sweeping them under the rug does not do anyone any favors. Mm. So to take a step back and, you know, since we're dealing principally with a Christian audience here, the, the bigger question is, is this even important? And the answer is yes and no. In, in terms of understanding what the Bible is, the history of, of uh, you know, the interpretation of the Bible, if we believe in interpreting the Bible against its context, that means we have to take issues of dating and authorship seriously, right? Um, but on the other hand, you know, Christian theology, I think, traditionally has wrongly 
been thought of as a as as having a number of nine or ten central doctrines, bibliology, theology proper, hamartiology, you know, the doctrine of sin and Christology, pneumatology. So, and and what I come back to is that when I look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3, and Paul says, I delivered unto you as of first importance. So he says, this what I have to tell you here is of first importance. And he goes on to say that Jesus bodily died, was buried, and he rose again from the dead. That's of first importance. So while while some of these text critical issues and the, these issues pertaining to the history of the transmission of the Bible are interesting, they're complex. Yes, quite unsettling because so often we have, in the same way that TikTok disseminates misinformation, unfortunately, pastors have also been guilty of disseminating misinformation, not intentionally, but Nobody has a monopoly on knowledge, so we have to expect that. So I think for those who are coming from a Christian perspective, we have to keep the main thing the main thing. And for me, that has to do with the resurrection of Jesus. Some of these other matters, yes, super important, super interesting, valuable for a whole host of reasons that we can't cover, but not the main thing. And so I don't know if that helps, but that is how I see it anyway. That's great. That's what we want people to know is is to get perspectives and and to hear how scholars address these things and approach these things. And I think there are issues that need to be discussed and teased out. And there needs to be even even some of my favorite scholars, I we don't agree on some things on some issues of like authorship or dating of a certain text or this and that. And yet I still go to their work regularly and recommend their work wholeheartedly and learn from them because mm. everyone is, has something valuable to contribute when, when everyone's seeking the same thing and, and listening to each other and being willing to have these discussions and being willing to argue. And so right. uh, I do thanks for some viewers who one who may be tempted to say, well, just it's all that matters is Jesus. No, I, I think what Chris is saying, at least what I'm hearing is that that's of first importance. And mm -hmm. that the further you get away from that, the more leeway and charity needs to be given to disagreement. Right. But it doesn't mean that something's not the main thing. So it's not a, important at all. I, I Lots of important think, things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, well, I think that, you know, like Pentateuch authorship, it doesn't have to, but it can have residual effects for how people view the history of religion, the reliability of the concept of God, even the Jewish people. Sure. A lot of Old Testament scholarship of the 1800s and 1900s was rooted in not even hidden, but open anti-Semitism. And Absolutely. studying the Hebrew religion as this primitive thing that got us to begrudgingly the real thing, which was the New right. Testament. Well, that's blatant Marcionism. And some people, though, who have elevated in scholarship were just rank anti-Semites and and their works contributed to continued dismissing of the Jewish people and this and that. So it's not like if you have a scholarly view, you're going to go that way. But it it shows how scholarship is not – you can't hermetically seal it from ethics or politics or history or right. you know all these fields are interconnected. So 
tread with caution, everyone, and, and yep. give charity <laughs> and then yeah. have the discussions. That's, you know, of course. Hey, you place. told me straight up that you you questioned some of the views that I state in my book. And yet here we are having a conversation, right? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and my the people that I appreciate, you know, it, stuff that I've put out in videos or, or my, stuff that I've written, uh, I have good friends who are like, yeah, I think you're wrong. <laughs> I'm like, well, I think I'm right. I think you're wrong, but but we still love each other. We still, uh, they are still people I look to. Uh, I would be, I would be aware if I came across somebody who I agreed with everything they said and they agreed with everything I'd said, I'd be like, okay, wait a minute. I think something's off here. (laughs) Yeah. This is, this is a plot. Genesis 1-1. Some people translate it in the beginning, God created. And it's talking about creation ex nihilo. Some people translate it in the beginning when God be created. And it's talking Mm -hmm. about, you know, something shortly after the beginning. And then some people translate it in the beginning of when God created or uh, the beginning of God's creation. Where do you land on it? Yeah. So I, I think, and this is one area where I am all but certain that I'm right on this. Oh, all right. I'll go with all but certain. Um, (laughs) So the word Bereshit, the first word, which is traditionally translated in the beginning, it can be translated in the beginning. You know, many have made the point that the word Bereshit lacks the definite article. And that is true in form. The the vo- the vocalization the vowel that we would expect there it should be bareshit instead of bereshit okay subtle difference um yes that is what we should expect okay but there are cases in the hebrew bible where a definite article is omitted in spelling but it is to be understood clearly to be understood in meaning Anybody who's worked with, I don't know, for example, if if you have competency in Spanish and English, for instance, there is not a one-to-one cor- correspondence with how you use the definite article. Depending on where it falls in a sentence, when I'm talking with my Spanish students, they would either refer to me as Señor Chris or El Señor Chris. Mm-hmm. And in Spanish, it, it can be either, but we would never say the Mr. Chris in English. That just doesn't make sense. Anyways, maybe not the best example, but hopefully it gives uh, you know some idea. So in and of itself, Bereshit can mean in the beginning, or it could mean, you know, in the beginning of or when God created, you know, that kind of thing. One of these alternative views that you see like in the New Revised Standard Version or something like that. Looking grammatically at the form Bereshit does not resolve the issue. What I think does resolve the issue is the beginning of verse two. And it's the fact that verse two, um, and we'll we'll pull it up here, if that's all right. If if verse one were supposed to end in a period, as it's were, that it that it was a complete thought, mm-hmm. we would expect the verb to come first in verse two mm-hmm. and the subject to come second. The fact that it's the other way around and that the word um, um, and the land, exactly, suggests that this is a subordinate clause Mm -hmm. in Hebrew. 
And therefore, if that's a subordinate clause, it means that verse one cannot end in a period. And if verse one can't end in a period, then that means Bereshit cannot be translated as in the beginning. And so what it it comes what what it amounts to is this is that Genesis 1-1 should be read, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, comma, the earth was messy schmessy, as one rabbi put it. Tohu that's bavohu. great. I've never heard that of tohu below, but that's, I love yeah. that. Messy schmessy. So, yeah, I can't take credit for that one, but um, <laughs> some other time we'll talk about that. So when God began to create the heavens and the earth, comma, the earth was, you know, a barren wasteland. It was, it was just a, a mess. Um, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Okay. And the wind of God, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Verse three, then God said, let there be light. And it's because of the way verse two begins and the way verse three begins that suggests mm. that verse three is the main clause um, of, uh, you know, essentially one long sentence that extends from um, the beginning of verse one to the middle of verse three. Mm. So the first period that we should see there is after, and God said, let there be light, period. And there was light, period. But to end verse one with a period, while it may be the traditional reading, mm -hmm. does not make, to, uh, to my mind, any sense in light of a couple of grammatical and syntactical issues in the verse. You know, the question people have is, well, what about, you know, creation? Does this undermine? That's a bigger issue where I'd refer people, you know, back to the work of John Walton, ancient creation stories are not interested in the creation of material stuff. They're interested essentially in ideology, theology, that sort of thing. In Genesis 1, it never was meant to be a science book about how the earth was created, how the universe was created. What it was designed to say, and we just don't have time to get into all the details of why, um, is it was written to say that at the beginning of time, God kept Sabbath. Therefore, you, O Jew, Judean, you know, depending on how correct we want to be historically, you should keep Sabbath too. You know, I, I think the biggest problem there is not so much the Hebrew, it's the tradition that has has developed around this verse. Um, and and people have, you know, they believe that it's, you know, it's 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 a, a you know a liberal agenda that drives the retranslation of this. It's not, it's just in this case. The traditional reading simply is not the best reading mm. according to the rules of Hebrew grammar in the Hebrew Bible. So that's that's where I land on that. Obviously, good... I'm, I'm very opinionated. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you the, but you're not uneducatedly opinionated. That's the difference. It's it's not something that or and it's not even something that's outside of your wheelhouse that you are relatively well read on and you have a strong you know, like this is something this is your focus and you focus specifically on the linguistic argument and you're making a compelling linguistic case that how that how one incorporates that with well what did the Septuagint translators do with it and how did they render it and and what degree weight should be given there and this and that right at that point 
you're having a good scholarship, biblical theological argument, right? You're not basing it on emotion. You're not basing it on some ideological thing you're trying to put forward. And this is why when I talk with viewers or when I'm teaching courses at churches or speaking in places, when, when people ask th um, questions like, what about, I mentioned again, what about Jonah? Or you've mentioned Job. Those are two books that there's people quickly ask, they want to know, but it, is it history? Did it really happen? What I found, what they're really asking is, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe it, that God is real? Because when, when I sit down and say, well, let's actually talk about the issues with Jonah, whether it's possible that it is a crafted story, tale, parable, whatever you want to call it, piece of satire, um, humor even, or whether it's history, the you're really wanting to know, do I think miracles could happen? Because your whole faith is based on the resurrection of Jesus, which is a miracle. Right. So if I say Jonah probably wasn't historical, you're going to lead a direct line to questioning the resurrection. And it's, right. you want to cut that off at the bud and say, no, 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 that's right. not the discussion that we're having. And I, that's not what I hear you saying or any other scholar who's put forth a non-traditional translation of Genesis 1.1 is, is not because you're trying to make a metaphysical statement. No. It's the text. I happen to believe that there is a God who created the universe. And um, all, all that I'm saying is from a historian's perspective, from, you know, a linguist perspective, that's not the point that, that Genesis one is making. Right. And so, but just because, you know, it let's, let's assume for the sake of argument that I'm right. If I am right, it doesn't mean that God didn't create the universe. So, so I think it's important to make those distinctions and not make, uh, not commit the error of making jumps in logic, you know, uh, mm -hmm. illogical leaps. Yeah. Final question that a viewer wanted to know, do you, how do you land on, uh, was Israel one kingdom that divided and split North South and, uh, you know, or was Israel as some people have reconstructed through archeology span or what they've considered archeology, span uh, findings and, and anthropology and comparative religions, Israel was this conglomeration of different tribalistic views that came together and eventually produced the people Israel, who then retroactively wrote their history as the Exodus and, and this and that. So kind of where, where do you where do you land or how do you approach those questions? Yeah, I mean, that's so that issue is really part of a much bigger discussion, and that is the the question of what is historiography i i use the term many people use the term history to talk about what actually happened mm -hmm. historiography is what people wrote about the past whether it's true or not and so you alluded to that i mean even with with jonah um the book of esther you know did that actually happen in real space and real time well that's up for debate i would say theologically it doesn't matter because it's the point of the story in the same way that Jesus tells parables and, and he can just begin. He doesn't say, hey, everybody, I'm telling a parable all the time. You know, he just right. he might start with a story and you're just expected to know, ah, this is a parable. And so is it possible to read Esther like that? Mm, I think so. And, and I think there are other cases in the Hebrew Bible where something is not identified as, you know, allegorical or, you know, a parable. Um, when biblical writers write about the past, are they always committed to telling the truth as it actually happened 
And the answer to that question has to be no. If for no other reason than when you look at the synoptic gospels, the events in Jesus's ministry are presented out of order. So we learn from that, um, you know, quite simply, ancient historiographers had a freedom in how they told stories. Events could be rearranged. Was there license? Yes, absolutely there was license. And, you know, I, I have a chapter in Jesus's Bible on historiography for this reason, because how we think about the assumptions we have about texts that are historiographic, should we be assuming, should our operating assumption be that these are written in order to accurately reflect the facts 100% of the time? My answer to that question is no. In the same way that if you, if you were to ask Jesus, did that actually happen? You know, this sower that went out to sow, is that story 100% historically true? I don't know that he dignified the question with the response, you know, because it's it's assumed that it's it's just a parable. It's we're focusing on the lesson here. It doesn't matter if it's true. Mm -hmm. And now that's also again for Christians, this is problematic because the Christian faith, as I mentioned before, rests on the fact that Jesus bodily historically rose from the grave. So does does. Our view on historiography matter? Yeah, absolutely, it matters. But, you know, what we think about the book of Jonah, whether that, you know, is, is um, you know, it's, it's a symbolic commentary on, um, you know, the Israelite institution of prophecy, mm -hmm. rather than about just a historical retelling of, you know, what happened you know, in the life of yeah. the prophet Jonah. Let me let me press a little bit, though, because, you know, Jonah, Esther, those books in the prophets and the writings are one thing. But what about the books that seem to or intended solely to give Israel's history, uh, you know, books like Samuel or Kings or even Chronicles and, and then the event of all events in Israel's history, the Exodus? Um, mm -hmm. That is what God seems to base his whole reassurance every time Israel has questions. And every time the psalmists wrestle with questions, it's, I am the right. God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who, you know, so there seems to be, you, I come from mainline traditions where they want to say, everything's parable. If I don't right. like it or understand it or want to acknowledge it as history, parable. I think that's when you get into, well, now everything's a parable, so nothing means anything. Right. But what, and that's not what you're saying. I'm not saying okay. you're saying that. Case by case basis. So it would depend on the book or the subject or the time in history. It's so many different factors. And, you know, one one teacher that I had used to say three trees make a row. And what he meant by that, he would use it in this way, is that when you want to evaluate the most, whether whether one view is the most likely explanation for something. If you have one piece of evidence to support it, not terribly convincing. Two pieces of evidence, eh, you know, it could be a coincidence. Once you have three independent pieces of evidence that point in the same direction, then you are on solid historical footing. Doesn't mean you're right. It just means that if you're going to argue for something else, you better be able to marshal at least as much evidence, mm. you know, because we've at least got a compelling argument here. I think with each passage or each issue that we talk about, we have to forget about 
all of the other issues and just deal with this one box. Okay, we're talking about this one issue here. And, you know, kind of like we did with, with Genesis, let's look at the linguistic data. Is there, you know, grammatical syntactical evidence in the text? Are there clues in the text? Is there internal evidence that could suggest something in the context that could suggest that the the surface meaning, what we perceive to be the surface meaning, is not the intended meaning? And, and really, there can just be a whole host of other factors. Do external sources, you know, uh, historical sources from Assyria and Babylon and, you know, so on and so forth, do they support um, what's there in the Bible, as they often do? Or do they present a different version? And if so, how do we determine which one is right and which one is wrong? And so when we deal with these types of complex issues, we, we can't allow our drive through culture to dictate how we deal with the, answering these types of questions. Mm-hmm. And kind of like you were alluding to before, people want theological answers from TikTok. It's like, that's not how it works. If, if we are really interested in the pursuit of truth, whether it be um, historical truth, whether it be metaphysical truth, we have to be willing to put in the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the bigger issue there. So a, a lot of what I say, I have no problem with people disagreeing with me, and I, I do not claim to have a monopoly on knowledge. What I, I hope to represent to other people is that it's it's worth the time to invest in answering these questions, you know, regardless of the outcome. At, at 45 years old, as someone who's, you know, been a, a practicing, believing Christian for uh, 26 years or so, um, and, and someone who's, as someone who's been through the uh, theological gauntlet, as it were, um, it's, I'm still very much a believer, you know, as much as I was beforehand. So asking these tough questions does not mean, you know, pulling the rug out from under one's faith, but you have to be willing to put the time in to come up with meaningful answers. And unfortunately, that does not come easy. I, I view scholarship as an act of worship. Mm. Because if we really do believe that the Bible is a source of truth, even though we might disagree on the historicity piece, you know, that kind of thing, how do we get to the truth, then it deserves our sacrifice that we should be willing to put time in, um, you know, to to really discern what is being said and what's not being said. So I don't know if that's helpful, but I, that's just kind of where my mind goes with these things. The, the approach resonates with me a lot. Right. And I would agree with that approach is there are some questions, you know, you don't, some questions you can answer easily, some questions you can't answer easily and knowing the difference right. between them and, and being able to taper expectations. I think if people read your book, they're going to get a pretty good handle on where you're coming from. They won't know all your views on everything because it's a short book and, you know, but I think they'll get a good handle on kind of your general approach and what I think is a helpful approach, especially in terms of text criticism. And that's what they'll understand what all goes into getting the Bible that they read. Um, and for those of you watching that, that have thought, you know, okay, this discussion is still kind of above my head. Part of that's the nature of this is, is in, in a book, 
Chris is able to literally show a picture, an illustration, give an example, spin pages, unpacking stuff. And it makes a lot more sense than in a discussion where we're covering a lot of ground and just by the nature of it. So I definitely encourage folks, check his book out, get it on. I got it on Kindle, get it in print. Tell it the best. What's the best way for viewers to follow along with Dr. Christopher Dost? Yeah, so I have a YouTube channel, Biblical Languages and Literature. So um, I'm highly inconsistent in posting. But, uh, it, you know, my last post was a look at the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1. And uh, I think tomorrow I'll be doing verse 2. And uh, But other times I'll, you know, do some interviews with scholars. And uh, But it's, um, you can, you know, check out my videos there, respond to me there. Um, but these days, you know, my biggest focus is, uh, you know, I became the CEO of Sabra Global Education. Mm. And so tell it's us, new... I want to hear, tell the viewers about what Sabra is and give them, give them, a, give them a pitch and, and let them yeah. know. So we're, we're a startup, you know, we, uh, we launched this in June and, um, we are, you know, the, the long-term vision is to be. Uh, an educational, uh, an online educational um, institution, essentially not accredited. We're not interested in accreditation, but really bringing in the best teachers from all fields, whether it's, you know, K through 12 education, um, you know, uh, adult classes, whether it be in, in languages or religion or um, art. You know, I have uh, a, a friend who is a two-time Emmy award-winning Disney animator who teaches animation for children. What I'm trying to do with, with Sabra is to create um, an online educational platform which is free of socio-political issues. And, you know, I'm, I'm a father of four kids. I've got two in college and two in high school. And, you know, I don't wanna get political. I, I don't like to discuss politics uh, publicly, but, I think suffice it to say that there is a growing dissatisfaction in the United States with socio-political issues and private interests um, infiltrating our educational system. And so, um, you know, I am working to build this platform in which parents, if they want a teacher for their five-year-old to teach them Spanish, they know that the teacher's going to teach them Spanish and only Spanish. You know, you get an art teacher, we're only focusing on that. Um, so we want to be free of that. But with that said, we've got a lot of cool stuff going on. I'm currently working with putting together actually a Jewish studies certificate program. And we're going to be covering things like textual criticism, introduction to Hebrew, um, you know, the history of biblical interpretation, that kind of thing. And so there's some really cool stuff on there that will be taught by um, some very high level and well-educated Jewish scholars and Christian scholars. And the goal is to just be objective, to educate people, not to uh, indoctrinate people, um, but to just better help them understand the field of biblical studies. And so I would encourage people to, um, you know, contact me if they're interested at chris at sabraedu.com. And right now we're working on our website. The um, 
you know, our website, sabraedu.com is up, but we're making some, uh, we have a lot of construction going on behind the scenes. So um, stay tuned, but definitely contact me. And, uh, you know, in my YouTube videos, you'll be seeing pitches for some upcoming classes that I'll be teaching, uh, like Aramaic, you know, an introduction to Aramaic, introduction to Hebrew, biblical Greek, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's, that's so cool. What does Sabra mean? So it's actually an Aramaic term, mm-hmm. um, which an ancient Aramaic term, which used to be master teacher. And the reason why we stumbled upon that is simply because, as so many companies find out, is that the first 150 names that you pick are not available because yeah. the domain's not available. <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, parts of growing business. But it's it seems fitting, especially since I've spent so much time in Aramaic, and yeah. we really are about um, – getting the best teachers we can for yeah. people. So, well, I think it's awesome. Applicable. I love the idea for it. And I, I want people to check it out, um, especially people watching, especially viewers with kids and and wanting something like extracurricular at the moment right now, extracurricular for your kids. Uh, you want your kids to be enriched. You want them to learn stuff. Definitely look into Sabra and see what Chris is doing because it's really cool. He's talked to me before about it and just the vision for it, the idea for it. And in a global world with uh, Internet access and and digital technology that's letting us talk face to face, there's just a lot of possibility. So, folks, check out Sabra. Uh, Get a copy of Jesus's Bible. It's, It's a fascinating read. Chris, I want to bring you on at some point. I want to have you back and I want to talk more about because you mentioned Aramaic and that's a whole Hmm. discussion. I think that would be fascinating to have um, as well as Arabic and what that why any of those languages matter and and especially Aramaic, why it matters in scripture and stuff. So let's uh, we'll we'll set up um, in the future, in the coming year, maybe we'll we'll have you back in for round two. But for round one, this has gone on very long and I love it. I love long form format. So thank you so much for being here, Chris. Uh, have a wonderful holiday season. And uh, yeah, you're just you're welcome anytime here in the dojo. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm honored.